Hey, welcome back to the Blue Collar Off-Road Podcast, episode 133. I'm Graham, I'm here with uh, Cody and Luke, not Richie today, and we have Eric from Radio Dynamics on. He's a local Massachusetts guy, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, he does the best power steering stuff you can you can buy for a buggy or anything, I think, at this point, uh, in my opinion. And... Uh, he just he's a cool guy if you follow him on instagram or anything like that he's always got cool posts and whatnot uh he's working on some interesting projects he goes to a bunch of or i don't know about a bunch but he's been to a couple of the recent events that i think we're going to talk about um we were talking a little bit about stuff beforehand uh so yeah we'll just jump right in anybody got a got a, a question primed luke cody Oh, I got you on this one. Okay, good. All right. So I know that we had talked offline. You said you're into uh, rail buggies. What is a rail buggy in your definition? How did you get into that? Well, um, kind of like many things in my life, fell into it by accident. Um, The buggy that I have, it's, it's not exactly a rail buggy, but it doesn't really fit into any particular classification. Um, if I had to put any kind of term on it, I'd probably call it a mini buggy. But it's a tube chassis that uh, <clears throat> has a Hayabusa motor in it, chain-driven gearbox for, for forward, neutral, reverse. And I had found this thing on Craigslist back in 2015. Uh, guy up in Maine was selling it. It was kind of in a state of disrepair, but it was one of those things. The parts were all there. The price was right, and I just had to had to pick it up. Ultimately, like that thing has been the most fun vehicle I have ever owned in my entire life. Like nothing against my old rock crawlers, my old Toyotas, all that stuff. But um, this thing is just a, a total blast to drive. And it's in my eyes and, and what I've tried to do with it has really been to, to try to create like a Swiss Army knife race car. It's never going to be the fastest or the best at any one particular thing, but it's a lot of fun to drive and it gets attention everywhere it goes just because it is so unique and uh and different it's not a rock crawler it's not um you know not really tailored to new england trails per se but um you know and it's it's not a utv because it's a motorcycle engine that's too large but it's been a lot of fun i've i've raced in the uh, mid 400 with it out in las vegas I've over the past few years mainly been racing hill climbs up here around New England. Um, did the Mount Washington climb to the clouds with it two years ago, and that was what? Yeah, that was what? probably the most intense thing I have ever raced. Absolutely, Dude, without you, a doubt. You're a madman. I hated driving up that. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine trying to go fast up, and that's nuts. Yeah, it's uh, so. it's pretty insane. It's seven and a half miles, seven point six miles from from the base to the summit. Um, I did it in eight minutes and one second. Wow! And yeah, for for anybody that hasn't driven that road before, it's a car and a half wide, left right, left right crest, and then once you get above tree line, it's just drop offs constantly. Li- um, yeah. It's it's gnarly. Like, okay, people say that about Pikes Peak. Like, oh, it's just a drop off. Like, there's a little bit of runoff at Pikes Peak. I mean, it's only a foot, but there's a little bit of like, or at least a crest. Once you start there's... getting up past a tree line here at uh, Mount Washington, it's almost straight vertical. Like, honestly, yeah, it's um, we actually so 
we have some guys from Colorado that come out um, that normally race pikes and they'll come out for Mount Washington. Mount Washington, they only race once every, it's normally every three years. Um, right now, it's going to be uh, the next one is scheduled for 2025. It wow. was uh, the last one was 2021. It would have been 2024, except there's construction planned for uh, for down around the base of the mountain next year. So they had to push it back an additional year. But yeah, there's some guys that come out from Colorado to race it and they race pikes. And the the thing that I consistently heard from all of those racers was that Pikes is an easier mountain to drive. Um, when we compare Pikes Peak to Mount Washington, they both have the same elevation gain for the race course. So even though Pikes finishes, you know, the, the summit of Pikes Peak is an extra 10,000 feet, the start line to the summit is the same elevation change, but Pikes is a 12-mile course. Mount Washington is seven and a half miles. And, yeah, because uh, they they start at that like halfway point, right? Like right where like the uh, oh my, I don't know what they call it, but like isn't there like a, a checkpoint? Isn't that the start for them? Yeah, I can't recall what the the exact starting elevation is, but it's I want to say like eighty five hundred feet or so, and I could be way off on that, but they, it ends up being a forty five hundred foot gain from where they start to where they finish, but they do it over a longer distance than we do it at Mount Washington. And that road is a full two lanes wide, smooth pavement. I mean, it's what I hear is it's kind of like driving a highway versus Mount Washington is just a paved goat path. Um, And so it it ends up being a much more intense road and a much more technical road to drive at Mount Washington, which is, you know, to me, like from even back when I had four wheel drive toys and, and was doing a lot of rock crawling, I was always interested in the more technical driving uh, you know, aspects. And so I think that kind of rings true to me, um, you know, with, with the higher speed stuff that I'm doing now. That's so cool. That is so cool. So now can we, can we dive into a little bit? You glossed over it, but this is a four wheel drive vehicle with a motorcycle engine. It's a two wheel drive, rear wheel drive. So it's it's a mid engine car. So it's a two seater right behind my seat is a motorcycle engine and it's, it's a Hayabusa motor, so it's an inline four-cylinder, 1,300cc, about 170 horse, um, and it's installed in the car the way it would normally be in a motorcycle, so it's the inline four going across from side to side, mm-hmm. and it reuses, it still uses the, the motorcycle transmission, so it's a sequential six-speed, but to get reverse, because motorcycles don't have reverse, um, the chain drive goes to a separate gearbox. It's called an RPM gearbox, and they were made specifically for doing motorcycle swaps, especially back before like Polaris Razors really started taking off when the the only UTVs on the market were like the Yamaha Rhino. Guys would swap in an R1 motor, and they'd use one of these boxes to get forward neutral reverse. And um, so it's a five and a half to one reduction box with forward and reverse. And then it has outputs, uh, a solid output shaft, so there's no differential but it goes to Porsche 930 CV shafts. Um, so it's just Porsche 930 CVs that go out to my tires. And it's, you know, when I first found this thing, I'm like, well, geez, I know nothing about this car. I know nothing about the parts that are in it or where I'm going to find replacements or whatever. But as I started really kind of digging into it and figuring out like what the parts were as I needed to replace them over time, it's super common sand rail stuff. Uh, when you look at like the VW and, 
uh, you know, I could basically go to the CarTech website and order everything I need to rebuild this car other than the chassis and the engine for the most part. Um, but yeah, it's, so I've got six forward speeds. I've got six reverse speeds. I could go pretty much as fast in reverse as I can in, in forward, which is kind of a, a crazy <laughs> thing. Um, <laughs> came in handy once because I had to jump start it in reverse just from, or pop start it in reverse just because I had a dead battery and I was facing uphill. So I had a bunch of people push me and I put it in like fourth gear reverse and was able to pop start it pretty easy. But, uh, yeah, other than that, that's that's kind of useless. But yeah, you know, fun. <laughs> yeah, I, this I'm thing looks super cool too. It's like a blue cheese wedge. <laughs> yeah, it uh, used to be green. I wrapped it in 2021, right before the Mount Washington race, um, which that race was actually the the Mount Washington climb to the clouds took place about two weeks after I quit my day job to go full-time with radial dynamics. So that was really kind of my first, I quit my job, went and raced, and then kind of did another trip after that with uh, with my friends from Torque Masters Industries. And then that was kind of like, all right, I got all that stuff out of the way. Now I can sit down and actually focus on like working for myself full-time. Yeah. That's exciting. Holy That's cool. Shit. That's different too. I honestly like, Sandrail has never really appealed to me just because I don't know anything about them, but that's now you're making me want one. They're so funny looking. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such a unique vehicle. Like nobody sees anything like that in, especially on the East Coast. Yeah, uh, particularly in New no... England. But like, I brought it. I've brought it to a few different Vermonster and um, you know, like the the obstacle course events um, around New England. I brought mm. it a couple of years ago. There was a, a snow. Um, Vermonster at McIntyre Ski Area in Manchester, New Hampshire, yep. and it was uh, snow drags going uphill. What? So I, I slapped some paddle tires on this thing, and I showed up, <laughs> and it's it's a motorcycle engine, so usually most people would consider it a, a UTV, but because it's a 1300 and most UTV classes are limited to 1000cc, it doesn't really fit in there, so I just, whatever, I just, I will bring it to any event, and I'll race whoever's willing to race me. <laughs> and so I showed up there and they said, oh, what class are you in? I said, I don't know. I'll race whoever whoever will race me. They said, well, we'll just put you in the four and six cylinder open truck class. So I said, all right, cool. So I'm <laughs> racing, you know, mostly like Toyotas and Jeeps and everything. And, you know, we're doing no drags up the, the bunny slope. And I ended up winning. You know, it was a, a round robin thing. I ended up making it to the last round. It was head to head three races and ended up taking it in, you know, the only car in two wheel drive with these paddle tires and just 10,000 RPM dump the clutch and go, and, <laughs> uh, you know, so it's like, it's just, it is a blast because nobody expects it whenever yeah. I, I bring it somewhere. That is so cool. That is so cool. It's different too. Like just because of the Hayabusa and, you know, normally when you think of like a rail You say that, but I feel like, like we've talked about Hayabusa motors like the past three episodes. We yes, talked because we talked about Eric. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, um, shoot! That's what <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, so like... Yeah. Um, there are a few Hayabusas floating around here, too. Um, I thought yeah, that's for sure. Buggy. Buggy. That is Hayabusa-powered. Yeah. Yep. Um, in the... the hill climbing group that i mainly race with we've got a couple other there's one other hill uh hill climb car that's hayabusa powered um used to be a dwarf legends 
circle track car that got converted into a hill climb car. And then one of the other guys who hill climbs, he's got a, another Hayabusa powered car that it's a more of a track car. He doesn't take it up to the hill climbs, but it's, I mean, it's a surprisingly common engine when you really start looking out there. So in my peripherals, it's not a common engine, right? <laughs> That's just, I've never really like seen one on the trail. That's why I say that. And like um, the time that I spent in the Southeast was, or like, uh, I guess, Texas, all the rail buggies out there were running either LSs or VW engines. Yep. That was the thing. So like to hear about a rail buggy with a Hayabusa engine to me is cool and different. I, I might not be in the space, but like, it's cool. Yeah, the uh, the car was originally built with an R1 motor, um, so a Yamaha thousand cc engine. Yep. And um, it was actually so I, I bought this thing on Craigslist. The guy that I bought it from up in Maine, he had told me that he had it shipped out from somebody in Michigan that was selling it. I didn't really have any of the car's history before that, um, and I was always you know curious about where it had come from, who built it, the welds on it. Well, most of the welds, all of the original welds on it were spectacular. The guy that I bought it from had changed it because it was originally built as a single center seat car. Um, and this guy wanted to bring his friends along. So he moved all the controls over, moved the seat over, added a second seat. And then where the engine is, there was a whole bunch of rework that was done in the chassis. And this guy was not a fabricator as much as he willed himself to be. So it had, it, it was just a lot of hack job uh, fabrication. But what I found out was that the car was built with the R1 motor. It died after he got it. And then he bought a Hayabusa just to take the engine out of it. But because the Hayabusa motor was a little bit bigger, he ended up having to cut a bunch of tubes and reweld you know, new mounts and all of that. And kind of hacked it all up in the process, but he stuck it in there. And I've since had to go back. I've done at this point like two full down to the bare chassis restorations on this car. Um, you know, one when I first got it, and then one after the 2017 Mint 400. I blew up the motor out there and uh, caught it on fire. It cracked the engine block, dumped all the oil onto the headers, and and caught on fire in the middle of nowhere. Um, so I brought it home and spent a year kind of redoing, rebuilding it after that. But the interesting thing is, while I was at the Mint 400 that year, uh, Rugged Radios was out there, and they were doing you know promotional videos and stuff. And I had a Rugged sticker on my car, so of course it made it into one of their you know, like a, a one second clip in one of their uh, videos from from the parade. And somebody tagged the guy that built it. And so I reached out to him and sure enough, like the guy that designed this car in, it was built in 2007 out in California. Um, he was the designer and then it was made by a shop that I think has since closed called Mad Racing. Um, but there were a few of these cars that were built and I could tell, you know, when I picked it up that it was, it wasn't just a one-off, like somebody welded this thing together in their garage. Like it was, it was done right. Um, and yeah, the, the guy was able to give me some background on it, that it was built with a junkyard R1 motor. They weren't really sure how long it was going to last. And then it made its way across the country. And so, you know, he still follows me on Instagram now and gets to see all the, the stuff I do with it, which, you know, he, I think that's pretty cool, but I had to go out to Vegas just to figure out by chance 
who had built this car and, and what the backstory was behind it. That's some dedication, man. That's fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now why? Okay. So why a Busa motor? Because I mean, I, I get it. You know, go Suzuki way more reliable. I totally get it. But like, why go for the 1300 rather than like the 1000 Jixer motor? A little bit more horsepower. Um, so this, the Hayabusa motors are uh, stock. They're about like 170 or 175 horsepower. And then what a lot of guys do, and if I had been more ambitious, maybe I would have, um, but they bore them out to like a 1400cc, and you can very easily push 200 plus horsepower out of them um, without having to really go too, too crazy and, and maintaining uh you know, being able to maintain some reliability. Cool. That's fucking awesome. Now, yeah, okay. they're, they're cool. How much now, again, I, I don't do any street racing or anything like that. Not necessarily just street or car Mac racing. We'll say that. So it sounds legal. Um, I don't do much of that. Now, how much really goes into like corner balancing with tarmac racing? I'm, I know that there are people that go a lot farther into it than I do. Um, my approach is pretty simple. I basically just take my off-road buggy, which it normally runs 30-inch. I've got 30-inch mud trains for the back and 30-inch all-terrains for the front. Um, just because it's rear-wheel drive, I don't have nearly as much traction in the front. But what I do to change it over from my dirt setup to my street setup is um, essentially just swap the tires. I've got some Yokohama, you know, performance street tires that I race uh, race on. They're quite a bit smaller, but fortunately with the way that my whole drivetrain is set up and the, the drive chain that goes from the motor to the gearbox, um, I've got a, a 15 and a 16 tooth sprocket. Um, so normally I'll have for like the off-road stuff, I want a little bit more reduction. So I'll put the 15 tooth sprocket on the engine, 16 tooth on the gearbox. And then when I put my smaller street tires on, I need more overdrive. Otherwise I top out at like 50 miles per hour. So all I have to do is just take the two sprockets off, swap them front to back. And now I make up my gear ratio, which is mm. pretty sweet. You know, it's a, it's kind of like a quick change gear ratio. Um, I'll also usually just on my coilovers, I'll drop it down like an inch or two just to, to get my center of gravity a little bit lower. And for me, that's pretty much the extent of, of what I do to set up for Carmack versus dirt. Um, it made a huge difference because when I first got into hill climb racing on pavement, I didn't have a sway bar or anything like that. And that thing had so much body roll to it. <laughs> I ended up putting in some short limiting straps just to be kind of like a poor man's sway bar. And um, it took me a while before I actually realized that that was hurting me a lot more than I thought, because with, uh, with the short, with the short limiting straps, when I hit a hard turn, it would just pick up that inside rear tire. And because the body was still rolling quite a bit, I'm on a tiny little contact patch on that outside rear tire. So I've got like no drive traction. Um, When I ended up going to put my long limit straps back in, especially after I got a sway bar on it, um, I bought a a nice Brannock sway bar with the long arms and it's, you know, I wanted to be able to set it up where it would still be ideal for off-road and be able to do on-road. Like off-road is still kind of my, my main focus. Um, 
But when I put the longer limit straps back in, and even though I'm rolling around the corners, now I've got so much more droop on the inside tire that it's still maintaining contact. And it was early last year that I made that change. And all of a sudden I started dropping like five to 10 seconds off all my personal best times at each of the mountains that we go to, which are pretty much all in Vermont. Um, so it's been, been interesting, but yeah, there's, there's other guys that really, you know, we race, it's such a, a cool community in hill climb racing because you have anything and everything shows up. Um, you've got people that show up in their daily drivers, you know, plenty of Subarus and um, Mazdas or whatever. <laughs> you got guys that are racing old stock cars. So like modified open wheel modifieds that have been set up to actually turn right now. Um, we've got a bunch of open wheel modifieds, some old like dwarf and legends, circle track cars. Um, there's some, like tube chassis track cars and then you get my off-road buggy and you know you, you look down the lineup of all the cars waiting to you know stage to to take their run and it's it's kind of an eclectic mix of of motorsports that all gather together at these events which makes it really cool really fun and exciting to me so that's super awesome um on that note like we were talk or Ram and myself were talking to a guy that races a Lexus in um, the Rally Series, and they have a lot of weird stuff that shows up there. Like, they have CRVs and whatnot that are racing Rally. Yeah. So, it's just weird when you start stepping outside of the Jeep area or the buggy area, and you start seeing, like, how motley of a crew starts getting thrown together, and it's, like, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, there's... Uh, <laughs> there's there's actually one of the guys that runs all the tech inspection and everything at the hill climbs. He owns a, uh, a garage up in New Hampshire with a, and a towing company. So, you know, every now and then he'll end up with a car that's just been abandoned. And once it sits in his lot for however long, I forget what the timeline is. It's, you know, a year or two years. Um, he can officially just claim that car as his own. And that will usually become kind of like the group hill climb car for anybody that just, any of like the the regulars that need a car for an event they used to have it was an old daewoo just this shitbox daewoo that you know they had this was a little bit before i had started racing with them but basically they had this whole uh kind of like a friendly competition going on that anybody could race the daewoo but they had to give up their normal car for that event and um you know it, it just kind of got passed around well there's a he's got a new car now that just started he br started bringing to the events this year it's an old chevy aveo which is like no horsepower n no suspension just a little econo box and you know it's one of the most fun cars to watch go up the hill because they just it's full throttle you know, pedal is to the floor from the base to the summit it's never going to get going fast enough that they really need to jam on the brakes um and you just watch this thing come rolling through the corners and uh there's a couple of weeks ago, I was up at a Scutney uh, mountain or up in Vermont um, for one of the hill climbs. And I was, my car wasn't running. So I was working one of the corners as a volunteer. And there's a bridge section there with kind of a little, a pretty good lip on it. And this car just went flying over this lip. <laughs> and the mm -hmm. smile on the driver's face was, you know, a mile from, from ear to ear. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's neat to see you don't have to have a fast car to show up at these events and have an absolute blast. So 
what is like the tradition or like a the hill climb track look like because when you say hill climb to me i think of like the monson mutters um hill climb setup where it's just like a straight up hill that they race the dirt bikes up yep i've actually Um, i've raced mine up that too before with the paddle tires um but no the the majority of the hill climbs that i do now um so it's basically it's a paved road that will be anywhere from two and a half to four miles long generally actually our, our shortest hill is about a mile um, but we start at the base usually it's like a toll road we'll start right at the toll gate and then we'll finish at the summit and these are relatively tight roads um, so there's a scutney mountain which is right off 91 when you're heading north through vermont we do Burke Mountain, which is up in the Northeast Kingdom. It's a, a couple hours north of, of the mass border here where I am. Um, and then we do, uh, I just missed Okimo uh, ski area was the one they That's ran. That's got to be wild. Weekend. Okimo is fun because there's a pretty good straightaway on uh, on that section. I topped Ooh. out my car last year. I hit my top speed, which was like 85 miles an hour. And that's just based on my gearing and tire size and everything that's like six gear 12,000 rpm um but that's guys so will be nutty. well in well into triple digit speeds going up there on so that section. with the rally guys that i was just talking about um one of the guys that we were looking at talking with got clocked at over a hundred miles an hour on a two-track dirt road in our area and i'm like jesus nice Christ, dude. yeah they they had a speed uh speed trap set up on that straightaway at, at okimo and i think i saw the times or the, the speeds from this past weekend the highest i think i saw was 113 that's God intense fucking damn. And, and the the interesting thing so like a scutney in particular a lot of these roads are not very well maintained We'll just put it that way. So they're very broken up. The pavement's always broken and, and bumpy as the roads settle over you know, tree roots and, and rocks and all of that. When we go to a Scutney Mountain, it is incredibly rough on like the top mile and a half uh, between the last checkpoint to finish. And of course, I show up there in an off-road buggy and everybody is jealous of the shocks on my car <laughs> for that section i ended up uh i took my truck up there my just like my f-250 to help you know set up radios and stuff um at the last event and driving in a normal car going up these mountains first of all you, you never realize how steep they are when you're driving up at full throttle and you also never realize just how rough and bumpy they are like it was just shaking my truck apart um coming down but in the buggy i'm just full throttle going as fast as i can in that section probably like 60 miles an hour and yeah, you're just gliding over the bumps yeah i wouldn't say gliding you still feel them it's rough (laughs) but not as rough as some other people are dealing with i mean you don't take a a low rider track car to one of these events because you know you're going to come home without bumpers basically (laughs) that's awesome so now the Okimo run is that isn't there is it on pavement or is it a dirt road that goes up to the top? No, um, Okimo is fully pavement. Um, I think once you reach like where they set up the finish line, um, we it, it's probably like a half mile from the very top, and then I think there's a dirt road from the top that 
kind of continues up to the very summit of the mountain. But um, the road is is entirely paved that we're racing on. Although that one also the the pavement gets gets chunked up pretty bad on it. There's a lot of a lot of places where it's kind of delaminating. So um, you know, it's part of picking your racing line is you know the bump and and the pavement will play a factor in how you pick your line going around the corner. And that's, you know, that, that was a whole learning curve in and of itself when I got into this. So I started hill climbing in 2018. Before that, I had never raced on pavement before. Um, I had only ever raced off road. And so learning how to drive a car, first of all, getting comfortable with corners, that took me a while. Um, learning how to pick race lines on pavement and how to actually drive fast because this is you're getting into a motorsport where you know it's it's seconds or fractions of a second will make the difference Mm -hmm. um and yeah it was it was a learning curve it took me i would say probably a good two or three years before i really started feeling comfortable in the corners and especially in a car like mine that you know it's got a lot of body roll i've bicycled it before and fortunately been able to save it but um you know, interesting things like when I first got involved and everybody's giving me tips and tricks and, you know, what I should be considering for tires. Like I started off on a set of slicks that I put on the buggy and I learned after, you know, Mount Washington, I had put on these Yokohama, just more of a street tire uh, because I wanted tread at Mount Washington just in case it rained and I didn't really have, you know, couldn't afford to just get another set of rims and show up with two sets of tires. I've already got so many sets with all my off-road tires and all that um but these these tires i run now they've actually got less grip but i'm faster because of the fact that my car leans so much in the corners with less grip i can actually slide it around the corners a little bit more and not have to worry about catching too much and rolling over um so yeah it's been a whole learning curve that is very different from anything that i had really experienced off-road before so uh, what is your background? We kind of jumped right into this and completely skipped over your past of how you really got into any of this. Did, yeah. Can you tell us so a little bit about, your... about the sand rail buggy or the, the rail buggy? I guess it doesn't really do sand anymore. Uh, <laughs> I, I still got the paddles for it. So yeah, it'll, it'll do sand. Like I've done the Munson sand hill, uh, hill drags, but it's... no, my, um, my involvement in off-road actually got started in 2003 when I was in high school. And it just kind of hit me today that that was 20 years ago, which I, I can't believe that's crazy. Um, <laughs> but no, my, you know, all growing up, like I didn't come from a motorsports family. My parents weren't into the cars really. And, and I didn't have, you know, I wanted a go-kart when I was a kid, never got one. I ended up, you know, buying a lawnmower so I could at least have something motorized and made some money mowing all the lawns in the neighborhood. Um, but no, when I was in, in high school and of course all my friends started getting into cars and everything. So I was into cars and then my dad wanted to have just a pickup truck in the family so that he could have one available for, you know, whatever we needed around the house. So he ended up buying me a 98 Toyota Tacoma. And this was in 2000, 2000, I think going into my junior year of high school. Isn't that the and years that I had the issues where they would crack the frame right behind the cab? Oh yeah, that was nice. that was the demise <laughs> of that truck. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I was in high school. I got this Tacoma. Started getting involved in um, 
at the time it was uh the club was tora t-t-o-r-a tacoma territory off-roaders association i think is was what it stands for um and that was kind of like one of the big Toyota clubs. It was a national Toyota club. And I remember being involved with them and my first time going down to Paragon off-road park down in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, I had this truck was on a three inch spacer lift with an add leaf in the back and 32 inch mud trains. And I thought it, you know, thought it was the best thing ever. Um, Cause it was at the time, was. you know? Yeah. yeah <laughs> and then when I got into college and started doing a little bit more with it and learning how to do a little bit more fabrication, kind of, self-taught and honestly when i look back at the welds that i did way back <laughs> then ugh, makes me shudder a little bit um but no i ended up in college took that truck i cut the front end off did a dana 44 solid axle swap under it and some 35s and bobbed the bed and made half doors and like it it was a really really cool truck i had so much fun with that and around that time in the northeast here the Toyota Club uh, kind of transformed into a joint venture with, I think it was Northeast Forerunner Owners Club at the time, maybe. And then the two clubs kind of merged and it became Northeast Toyota Crawlers, which is, is still around today. Um, so I was I was very heavily involved with the club back around then when, when Northeast Toyota Crawlers originally formed. Um, and it was in my senior year of college, so we're talking 2008, that, of course, all the frame issues started coming up with Toyota. And, of course, my truck was no different. It ended up with a, a rotted out, cracked frame. So I stripped everything that I could off that truck. I kept the, the bed that I had bobbed. I made a wooden flatbed for it. I took all the guts out of the front axle, just kind of tapped on a, you know, some, some hub covers so you couldn't actually see that it was just empty end to end in the front axle housing yeah i just i stripped the truck as much as i could and lifted it down the road to toyota and they gave me a check for it and gave me a rental car for a month and then um after that i ended up with a an early 90s toyota that i did i basically took all the parts i had saved off the tacoma i put them on a 94 toyota pickup did a solid axle you know dana 44 under that um and just kind of continued on my way. But then a couple of years later, I ended up with a 1985 Toyota Truggy. So it was uh, four-cylinder propane dual cases on one-tons. And yeah. I started started doing more with that. Um, at the time that I bought it, it had just a, a normal steering box that really didn't, didn't work much at all. So that was my first full hydro steering system. Um, and I... You know, remember getting that in. I had pieced together bits and pieces. A, a coworker had had disassembled uh, a forklift, so I grabbed the cylinder and and the orbital valve out of a forklift. With this <laughs> got a, what they call foreshadowing, perhaps, maybe. <laughs> and you know, I I really had no idea how to piece together a steering system, but I got a pump from PSC and you know the the whole pump kit, and it worked. But it was like. I realized afterwards it was like five turns lock to lock, non-load reactive, and it was okay if I was just cruising around on the trails. But um, a friend of mine, Josh Maserol from Vague Industries up in New Hampshire, was putting on a series called the Boulder Bash around 2010, 2010, 2011. So um, I ended up, you know, started racing my pickup in that series and. 
was like, wow, this steering is awful. It's I can't steer it quick enough to actually drive and, and maintain any control. So then I ended up getting, you know, the full PSC kit with the RAM and, and the orbital and, and all of that that was properly sized and um, got into racing RC Rocks, which down at uh, Roush Creek, they were doing like an Ultra 4 style race at the time. Um, King of the Hammers was just getting big. I had gone down to the the right coast qualifier when they were running the ultra four qualifiers at Roush and just absolutely fell in love with it. So, you know, I did that for a couple of years, um, never finished. I mean, it took me a year and a half before I finished my first race. Cause I remember the first one down at Roush, I broke an axle shaft and then I was trying to winch myself out of the Valley that I was in and turned my winch cable into a big ball of spaghetti. So, you know, kind of came home with my, my tail between my legs and, uh, next time out, I think I broke my leaf springs and then that caused my pinion yoke on my front axle to just grenade like it's just it was one thing after another i learned very quickly that racing is hard on stuff um and i had eventually i I did end up finishing one of those races eventually um and afterwards i decided i'm gonna build a new buggy and so i kind of stripped everything down the the chassis on that toyota was just totally worn out so i started building a new tube chassis that i was going to put the same drivetrain and axles and everything into it um and it was one of those projects i got it to the point that it was a roller i was living down in virginia at the time brought it back with me when i moved back uh up to massachusetts to be a little bit closer to home and i just kind of lost steam on it um it sat around for about a year or so and around that time so we're getting into like 2015 now um hanging out with you know some of my friends that everybody that's you know from the the off-road community up around new england here uh we ended up going down to west virginia for the bro light race and i don't know if you guys are familiar with bro lights but Mm -hmm. it's a low budget grassroots short course racing series that really took off for about a year or two but it was um, a spec racing class. You had to start with a Ford Ranger, had to be two-wheel drive, four-cylinder, five-speed. You had to use um, factory suspension mounts, but you could swap out your springs and put bigger shocks in it. But you couldn't touch the drive train, you couldn't touch the motor, couldn't touch the transmission. So it was, you know, it had to have a, a cage, a fuel cell, and a racing seat with a five-point harness. And so these trucks were like about three to five thousand dollars to build race ready and it was a blast and um i ended up going down to one of these races with mike catrini and matt Gregg and you know a bunch of the the new england guys and just i was like i need to build one of those so then the <laughs> next week i had a ford ranger and i got a you know cage kit from liquid iron industries and um started going to town on that and then around the same time i found my current buggy um pop up on craigslist and i was like that's really cool. I need to go get that. So of course I had a a giant garage at the time that's just filling up with projects. And I was like, I really need to make a decision here. I realized I can build and race twice as many cars that are two wheel drive as one that's four wheel drive. So I ended up selling the chassis that I had built to, to Steve Smith. And he's actually, he's, his rig today is the one that I had started building out of my old bits and pieces. Um, oh, damn. 
so yeah, it's, it was cool. And that truck I had bought from a good friend of mine, Rich Seymour. So like to see that, that original drivetrain, that chassis, or, you know, the, some evolution of that truck has maintained, you know, a life within this Northeast circle is, is really cool. Um, but yeah, I ended up, so I kind of turned my focus to my short course truck and my two wheel drive buggy. And I was like, well, you know, I enjoy rock crawling and ultra four and all that stuff, but it's too expensive for my blood to keep breaking parts every weekend and spend all my time fixing stuff. Um, so I kind of got out of that game for a bit and it was two years, two and a half years later that I kind of fell into full hydro by accident and led to where I'm at right now. Um, let's dive into that a little bit because that's something that's super exciting. And I have a big question about a very large vehicle that I had no idea about until I just kind of creeped on your Instagram a little bit. Um, so how do you, okay. So I'm assuming your company does full hydro. Like that is your main shtick. That is your thing. That's that like, is my specialty. That is, I have, I've been extremely fortunate to have been able to carve out a little niche corner of the market for myself. Which is just so cool because I love that. I love when people actually, because it's not like another rough country. It's not like another, uh, I don't know, tire brand. Like this is something that like mainly what PSC and then uh, what's that other brand? Trail gear. Trail gear. Like Trail that's gear. Yeah. I mean, out of it. By, by most standards, there are relatively few steering companies in the off-road marketplace. Yeah. You've got PSC, Trail Gear. Um, Power steering solution, how and maybe AGR, um, you know, kind of floating around out there. Oh, and and Lee power steering, and you know, some of them each each ends up having kind of their own specialty or their own corner of the market that they really focus on. So yeah, it is. You know, when I when I kind of stumbled into all of this and started looking at it, like, okay, am I going to start a business to do this? Um, yeah, I. I consider myself very fortunate that I stumbled into a, a part of the market that has relatively few competitors, but is also something that a lot of people struggle with and that it's, um, you know, it's, it's not something that's intuitive to most people. You know, I had in years past before I really even had any kind of concept for uh, starting this business, I'd always wanted to start a business. And I had done a couple of things in the past. I'd um, you know, built some bumpers and at one point bought like a screen press and started doing t-shirts and you know, just things that never really took off. And you look at mm-hmm. how easy it is to start a business today, and especially something that a lot of people can do, like you know, doing basic fabrication or cutting out tabs and brackets. You know, there's relatively low barrier to entry for those things in the marketplace. And there's a lot of people that do it. You know, you got the big companies like um, Rough Stuff that do massive amounts of, of brackets and tabs and builder parts. And then you've got a lot of, you know, shops that have a plasma cutter that they can, can cut out whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, there, there aren't really that many places out there that do steering. And Which- so... Which yeah. I commend you on because, like, especially with not many people fully understanding steering, when they're when they're talking to their buddies sitting around a campfire, and they're like, "Yeah, man, I really want to go full hydro." 
not every single person sitting around that campfire is going to understand it. So they're just going to default to what everybody else considers the best. So I, I commend you a shit ton for going into this because it's something that like you have to prove to other people why they should buy your product without trying to just teach them science. So I think that's that's really fucking cool that you were like, you know what, I'm doing this, I'm going for it, and you're making it happen. That's so sick. Yeah, so I appreciate another, that. Another point that I'm going to throw out there is I've been doing this stuff for like 10 years now with the shitbox, Cherokees, uh, almost 11 years. It used to be the name was PSC. Now if you're serious it's radial dynamics yeah it's um you know i I still do a good bit of work with psc i probably send them a purchase order every week or two um (laughs) but you know nothing against psc like I've, i've got a great relationship with them and um their their bread and butter is jeep kits you know selling hydro assist kits and and upgraded pump kits for jeeps that don't necessarily see the type of abuse that you know the really extreme side of the market will will be experiencing um and you know i i try to keep giving them you know some business and and selling some of the parts where it makes sense for me um and they on a regular basis i've gotten plenty of calls from from customers that have said well, I called PSC. They pointed me towards you because I'm looking for something that needs higher flow or higher pressure, and uh, you know they just didn't have the product that would would meet my performance needs. Um, and so, yeah, that's really what I've been trying to, to focus most of my efforts. My goal has never just been to be another online store or another. You know, people can go a hundred different places to buy even a PSC pump, um, whether it's you know, summit racing or four wheel parts, or, you know, there's a hundred different websites someone can go to buy a steering pump from. But when you start getting into these much higher demand applications, it's really, it becomes critical how the steering system is set up and, um, you know, how everything is plumbed and just all of these little seemingly minor considerations that have a big impact on how the pump performs and how long it lasts. Um, and so that's really where I've, I've put all of my efforts into trying to provide customer education and, um, you know, try to do a lot of tech posts just so that people can understand why things need to be done a certain way or, you know, why they need a certain component versus maybe a lower budget component um, to, to accomplish what they're trying to do. That's so cool. And this is perfect because I wanted to talk about this before we started the podcast, but you made one post that I saw. um, This was a a little while back. It was about the placement of your reservoir and about how it doesn't need to be above the pump because you're, you're applying, uh, you know, there's, there's pressure in the system that's going to push the fluid towards the pump. So you don't need to have the thing fully above your pump the reservoir doesn't need to be above the pump and outside the hood uh, for you to get the pressure you need to run the, run the pump without cavitating. Right. Cause there's nothing that bugs me more right. than when there's a reservoir sticking out of the hood. And now <laughs> that I know, now that I know your tech post, now I'd hate it even more. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I guess the caveat to that is that in order to, not have to worry so much about the elevation of the reservoir it does have to be a pressurized reservoir 
Um, yeah, and- yeah, I was just about to ask about that because from where I understand, no, but the that- ones you see out of the hood, Luke, aren't the factory ones. It's the PSC one, or you know, just somebody's. You know, obviously, yeah. If you just got a bucket with uh, power steering fluid, that's yeah, you're gonna have to elevate it. But you know, the ones you see sticking out of the hood are the PSC ones, and those are pressurized. I think uh, you said not, like, well, not necessarily. Only no? if, oh. only if somebody's using. So, I guess just to to clarify on what a pressurized reservoir is, um, most like if you just have a PSC reservoir, the the cap itself has a vent port. And most of the time, if you just buy the reservoir, it's going to have a, a, a push lock fitting with a piece of plastic tubing that mm. you just run down to your chassis or you know somewhere for an overflow for a catch can or whatever. Um, and in that case, your reservoir is vented to atmospheric pressure. So if you were to put a pressure gauge on your reservoir, you would read zero PSI. Oh, um, yep. That's where I was about to go with that because... Uh- don't they make a uh, fitting that allows you to pressurize the PSC pumps? Yeah, not so pumps, the reservoirs. Yep. So there's a they, some people call it the anti-splash valve or the remote pressure valve. Basically, that is an optional component that would go on the opposite end of the overflow tube on the top of that vent line. And what happens is as the fluid heats up, because as soon as you start your engine and you start running that steering pump the fluid's going to start to warm up. Um, and as it warms up, it's going to expand due to thermal expansion. So if we essentially block off the the vent uh, or you know put a restriction in that vent line, then as the oil heats up and expands, you're going to trap that air that's normally in the top of the reservoir and you're going to compress it. And that's how we're building pressure in the reservoir. Yep. Yep. Um, the reason that we need that valve on there rather than just putting a vent plug you know, putting a plug in that vent hole um, is the fact that if the pressure builds up too much, and I generally would say anything over 20 PSI is too much, um, then you risk doing damage to the shaft seal on the pump. Because a steering pump, you've got obviously your shaft comes out the front that's got the pulley on it. And there's going to be a shaft seal that squeezes around that shaft. And, uh, if the pressure gets too high, then one of two things can happen. Uh, number one, the higher internal pressure will cause the steel lip to squeeze harder around the shaft as it's spinning. And so it's going to end up reducing the life of that shaft seal. Um, and then in some cases, and especially on certain types of pumps where they might not have anything that's positively holding the shaft in the pump body other than just a press fit, if the pressure is too high, I've actually seen shaft seals get pushed right out of the front of the pump. And now you've got oil, you know, oil hits the pulley, the pulley's spinning. So it just starts flinging oil everywhere and making a mess of your engine bay. And then catches on fire. And then catches on fire. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't, <laughs> we don't like to use the F word, but no. <laughs> I'm very, um, you know, and it's those types of things that really drive me to make sure that anybody that's you know buying parts for me or even if they're not buying parts for me but if somebody's setting up a steering system you know things like that can result in an oil leak that yeah can can catch your car on fire um and so it's very easy to not consider you know i see it so many times that people just put a, a plug on the vent hole in their reservoir cap and you know 
some people can do that for 10 years and not have a problem. Someone else puts it on and immediately blows a seal out of their, their pump. Um, and it's kind of a, I, I can tell you why one would work and the other wouldn't, but most people don't understand that they even have to pay attention to that. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm constantly focused on how to make steering systems safer um, because, yeah, it's it's kind of a risky thing that we're doing with these systems. Yes. And on the note of the F word, one thing that has slightly taken me aback a little bit is um, through meeting up with those rally guys, I got handed a fire suppression system and like I have to replace the Hydra on it. Do you know how fucking cheap those things are? It's yeah, like it's 550 hard. bucks to redo the whole system front to back with dual um, dual leads and separate bottles. So I have yep. an in-cab system and an engine bay system. 550 bucks to make sure that something that I've got 15 grand into doesn't catch bro, fire. Bro, fuck the 15 grand. Yeah. Worry about your life or your girlfriend, bro. What do you mean? Right. Like, holy right. shit. So, I mean, so yeah. Um, until last year, I was actually, I was a distributor and service center for spot technique, fire systems, fire suppression systems. Um, gave it up a year ago just due to insurance reasons, because I'm already high risk doing steering. And when you start selling safety products as well, they kind of, the underwriters will have a heart attack. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so that topic is something that I know a, a good deal about because that actually kind of translates over from my past career before I quit to do this full time. Um, but yeah, the, the fire suppression systems are a lot more reasonably priced than most people like, envision them to be. I would have never started looking into it if I was not given the uh, bottles with the mounts on the top for running the hydras. I'm not mm -hmm. going to run the setup because the original setup. Are you saying is, hydras? Uh, that's what, what is they the word were. you're saying. Hydra. Um, hydra. Okay, sorry. I just I didn't know yeah. what the word was. I apologize. Hydrants. Uh, He's putting full on fire hydrants under his hood. Dude, I can get you some. They're a little heavy though. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't need any more weight. I'm trying to cut a thousand pounds. Um, no, why not add some? Uh, more weight is yeah. better. Um, McDonald's, skinny boy. But like. <laughs> It, it's wild to me that they are not more popular in what we are doing, especially yeah. for the cost. Because I, people I don't that, care. Um, some people don't care. Some people, uh, you know, think that it's too expensive, or you know, they don't have room for it, or whatever. Um, you know, and I, I can fully admit that I myself really should have had one in my buggy for the last year and and or for the past several years, but especially in the last year. Um, and I, I haven't, although I did after my fire at the mint 400, um, you know, at the time I was just running all dry chemical, you know, powder fire extinguishers that you can get at like home Depot and stuff. I will tell you that the dry chemical extinguishers are terrible. I mean, they're, they're effective, but they are terrible. Um, you don't want to breathe in any of that powder because it nope. <laughs> will be incredibly, incredibly irritating to your uh, your breathing. Um, and then it's also extremely corrosive. So I had ended up when when I had my fire at the mid 400, it was the front corner of my Hayabusa motor, the engine block cracked. And that was my own fault um, when I had done a, a transmission swap in it. 
Um, you have to split the whole engine case in half and put it back together. Yep. And there's the crankshaft balancer rides on, there's a shaft that gets inserted from outside of the motor. And it's got a little arm on it that you put a bolt through into the side of the case. That's what keeps it in place. I didn't put any Loctite on that bolt. And 85 miles into the Mint 400, that shaft started to slide out of the motor. And when it lost its end support and all of the, the force that was on that balancer from the crank just torqued that whole corner of the engine case apart. And so it dumped all the oil onto my headers, which wrapped you know, from the front of my motor, wrapped down and underneath. Um, and so I had a five pound dry chemical fire extinguisher that I pulled and sprayed that on everything. And, you know, of course, loaded it up in the trailer, drive back across the country, got home and everything that had been touched that was in that area that had been touched by the chemical uh, powder was just corroded, yellow, nasty. Yep. And that was kind of the main oh. reason that I just did a full pour everything down to the chassis. You know, the fire itself wasn't really that bad. Um, I was able to put it out pretty quickly. And fortunately, it was just, you know, just engine oil that uh, that had caught fire. But yeah, it's just nasty stuff. So I do. I've run upgraded fire extinguishers in my car now. I've got a, a foam extinguisher that's in the cab of AFFF, uh, low expansion foam based. And then I also have uh, a Novak fire extinguisher, a larger one that's hanging off the back of the car. Um, and that's, I mean, I could get into a whole nother podcast on fire safety and different agents and all of that. But um, feel free to throw out some of that stuff dude like if you got some simple advice like my preference is co2 uh-uh. uh compressed puts that not... shit right out so the only uh-huh. problem with co2 though is isn't it it's compressed and you can't always tell if it's full without weighing it is another way you can tell it. and also when you eject it it like it forces outward so you can actually like push the fire like let's say let's for example say his power steering fluid Catches on fire, drips on the ground. You have leaves on fire. You go to spray the engine bay. Cool. Oh yeah, you obviously it's not Next second, leaves. Next second, uh, your leaves are flying everywhere, and field and forest is now field and fire. So, so <laughs> I would say for for an off road use, CO two is not really the way to no, go because no. it's it's in a it's shop. I'm I'm thinking in a shop. I've I've never had to thank God. I've never had to put it a fire on the trail. Yeah, uh, yeah well enough. But in in a shop, <laughs> CO two all the way. Uh, it's yeah. it's saved me several times. So CO2 will suffocate the fire, but it's not going to necessarily prevent reignition if everything's really hot. Um, and then the other thing... When we the think benefit about, of CO2, though, is it cools things down. That shit goes cold very quickly. Yeah. And so it depends. Actually, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Novak, Novak does the same, works by the same um, extinguishing means. Novak mm-hmm. is a, a material made by 3M, and it's basically... Uh, kind of a, a halon replacement because halons are bad. They eat the ozone layer. Nobody yep. makes them anymore. Um, but yeah, Novak is really, it's actually really interesting stuff. So it's stored as a liquid. If you have it in liquid form, you can drop your laptop or your cell phone in it because it's non-conductive. So it will not ruin electronics and you can touch it. Like it's, it's safe envi- environmentally, mm-hmm. um, you know, compared to some other, other extinguishing agents um but yeah the, the way that it works because most people think that since it's it acts as a gaseous agent so when you spray it it turns from a liquid into a vapor most people think that anything that's putting out fire as a vapor is suffocating the fire and displacing oxygen and you shouldn't be there because 
you know, you're going to suffocate yourself. Um, but that's actually not the case with Novak, um, which essentially as you spray it, it so readily turns from a liquid into a gas that it cools so much that it just the, the extraction of heat is what extinguishes the fire. So it works in that same way you're talking about with the CO2 um, using the cooling effect. But what I recommend for a buggy actually with, uh, you know, any kind of open cab, you know, if you've got wind drift, you don't really want to use a gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so foam is is really my go-to recommendation uh, when we're talking about an open cab vehicle. Uh, because with the foam, it sprays a bit more like water, so you have better control over where you're spraying it. And it's it's smothering the fuel source. So you're basically blocking the contact between the fuel and and the oxygen in the air and then because it forms a blanket it actually it wets everything and it prevents reignition that way um so it's you know for for most motorsports applications unless you know i would i would normally tell people back when i was selling these things that um if you had a car with really sensitive electronics and you needed you know wanted to make sure that you don't have any kind of mess that you're creating um then you should use the novak but otherwise foam was definitely my go-to foam is also less expensive uh it's less expensive to purchase a new kit and to service the bottles when when the due date is up because they need to be serviced every two years um if you're racing in a in a sanctioning body that requires that it would normally be a two-year service interval um but yeah so that's really you know kind of the the quick rundown on the the major types of extinguishing agents. Yeah, that's cool. I've never, I honestly had never heard of Novak. I've heard of uh, Halon or whatever they call it, but um, uh, yeah, that's cool. Um, we we missed it. They were we talked we started talking about the company. So, what actually motivated you to start Radial Dynamics? So I fell into this really by accident, which I think is probably how a lot of businesses start. Um, My career before this, so I graduated from UMass in 2008 and in 2009 started, I graduated in December 2008. Two weeks later, I started my career um, actually right around the corner from where I'm at now at a company here in Greenfield, Mass called Beat Fog Nozzle. And it's a spray nozzle manufacturing company. Um, they make spray nozzles for all kinds of different industrial applications. So I worked on a lot of different uh, oil refining, air pollution control, uh, chemical processing, food processing, all these different applications. And I was an, was an applications engineer, so I would interface with customers. They would tell me what they're trying to do, and I would help them figure out what's going to be the best nozzle for their uh what they needed. And we did as, as I started there and and was getting more involved, we started doing a lot of like fabricated piping assemblies with piping and flanges and having to do code calculations to make sure that the pipe wall was correct and that the weld sizes were correct. And it started really getting into these heavy industry, um, you know, piping engineering. And then fast forward another couple of years in like 2014, 15 timeframe, we had gotten so many requests, um, you know, customers that I had talked to that said, geez, you're selling me a nozzle. Could you put together a whole pump package to go with it? 
And our response always was just, no, we don't do pumps or valves or any of that. We just sell the nozzle. You need to supply this much flow rate, this much pressure to it. And it will, you know, give you this spray pattern, do whatever you're, you're trying to do. And around that time, I said, you know, we've got a lot of smart people in this building. I, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't be able to do pump systems. So they kind of gave me a little bit of free reign to start quoting jobs doing these pump systems. And of course, I had to sort of teach myself a bit at the time about um, pump sizing and plumbing sizing and what types of valves. There's a million different types of valves out there for these industrial applications and when's the right time to use what type of valve. And so, of course, all in the the meantime, I'm doing the off-road racing and, and doing all the motorsport stuff in my free time. Well, in 2017, um, I was going around to a lot of different Ultra 4 races and rock bouncing events all across the country. And I was doing a lot of photography at the time. This was after I blew up my car at the Mint 400 in the spring, went to a bunch of different events throughout the year. And later uh, that November, I was on a road trip out to Ohio for my day job to go do some spray testing with a customer. And I decided I would drive out and I'd go see some friends in Pennsylvania on my way. And a good friend of mine, Nate Stowers, who I'd worked with for the couple of years I lived down in in Virginia, um, he at the time was Josh Blyler's co-driver for Big B Motorsports. Um, and these were you know, this is a, a national Ultra Four racing team. Um, and so I had just stopped by to hang out for the weekend, and I knew that. You know, they had been struggling with steering pumps and steering systems that, you know, I mean, it's it's been a constant problem, especially back then in Ultra 4. That was probably one of the biggest things that was taking taking competitors out of races. So I was just hanging out for the weekend and they said, oh, we're going over to Roush tomorrow to try to do some diagnostics on the steering. Do you want to join? I said, sure. I don't have to be in Ohio until Monday, so I can just leave, you know, Sunday afternoon and I've got some time to kill. So I went and I was really just going to hang out and take pictures and I'm listening to them talk about, well, this trophy truck steering pump is supposed to be this many gallons per minute and this pressure. And we keep you know, back in 2016, 2017, um, between Josh and his dad, Rusty, each of them were, were racing their own cars. They went through at least one pump per race that season. You know, we're yeah. talking a $2,000 steering pump. Everybody Jesus. thinks it's going to be this bomb proof ultimate pump can't kill it, but they were, they were going through a lot of them. Um, and just as I was listening to this talk about pressures and flow rates, something clicked. It was one of those light bulb moments. And I said, wait a second, you know, how much oil do you guys have in the steering system? Oh, I don't know, maybe three quarts, you know, to, to fill it. And I pulled out my calculator and I said, all right, you got three quarts. So that's three quarters of a gallon and 13 gallons per minute. And I started doing the numbers. I'm like, you guys, your oil leaves the pump, goes through the steering system, and enters the pump again every something like two and a half seconds. And I said, and at this flow rate and this pressure, that pump is consuming theoretically about 15 horsepower. So I said, you guys have 15 horsepower of energy being absorbed by your oil every two and a half seconds. Wow. And that was, that was the moment. And I said, I don't know what the solution is, but I know that this is fundamentally wrong. And okay, the fact so 
No, shut up. Let the man man talk. Shut the fuck up. The the off-road Hallmark music is playing here. He's like, it's a moment. (laughs) It was a moment. Yep. Um, Yeah. yeah, The the manufacturer of that pump was like, well, I don't know what to tell you guys why you keep blowing up these pumps and you're just going to have to do something different. And that was like, to me, I said, well, this is, this is a fundamental issue right here. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is, this is a no brainer. Um, so I said, if this is supposed to be the best thing on the market and it's, and the, the problem is that obvious to me, like I had never really considered myself an expert in anything before. I certainly was never really involved in hydraulics before that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the fluid, the fluid, uh, pump systems that I was designing in my day job, you know, even though I didn't even really feel like I was an expert at that, I knew the fundamentals and the concepts, the, you know, the the elementary concepts of fluid dynamics all applied. And, and so that was really kind of, uh, you know, I, I love taking road trips because you've got all that time to just think and let your thoughts run wild. And I had driven out to Ohio and I did some testing and then I had whatever, 20 hour, 18 hour drive back home, just thinking about like, it can't be this simple. Um, and so I, I got home. I, I reached out to, to Josh and the guys and I said, I think I can help you guys. I'm going to need details about you know, everything you can tell me about your steering system. And I ended up building an Excel spreadsheet that calculates everything I need to know. And I've built on it over the years, but that spreadsheet is still open on my computer every single day because when people call in, I'm immediately on it and I'm plugging in numbers and okay, this is, this is what we need for flow rate. This is, you know, your Ram size, how much force you're going to be producing this and that. And, um, you know, we ended up making some changes. I said, the first thing, you know, we need to change hose sizes. We need to, to move where things are being plumbed in the system in what order. And then I said, the other big thing is the reservoir. And that was really, I had, I had focused in on the reservoir that they were using. It was one of the ones that's a canister with a spin-on filter on the bottom. Mm -hmm. And when I started looking at it and I said, well, the the oil goes through the filter and then it goes right back out to the pump. So there's about a quart of oil that's just sitting there, not really doing anything. I said, if you guys, you know, if I can design a reservoir that gets that quart into circulation, it's not a huge increase in volume in the system. But if we're going from, let's say, two quarts of oil that's circulating and one quart sitting stagnant in the reservoir to three quarts that's actually moving in the system and absorbing energy and, and moving heat away from the pump, you know, that change alone right there is a 50% increase in effective capacity. And so I became obsessed with the reservoir and was focused on designing a better one. And I spent weeks kind of just brainstorming and sketching out some different baffle ideas and this and that. And I kind of stumbled across the cyclone reservoir design, which I can't take credit for that. That was, you know, Eaton had a patent on it back in 1990, I think, Um, you know, the way that it was designed, but it still had, I really liked the way that it separated and removed air bubbles from hydraulic oil. That's what it was designed. But it still had a lot of the same limitations um, where you ended up with stagnant oil sitting in the top half. And so I said, okay, how can I take this concept and make it better? 
and it ended up being you know, several weeks of just I've got some acrylic. I borrowed my dad had a little piranha benchtop CNC router, so I started cutting out all these different baffles out of acrylic and gluing everything together, and hooked up a water pump, and I'm just pumping water through it at 15 gallons per minute. So I'm like, well, this is pretty close to a trophy truck pump flow rate. <laughs> and it was a lot. And I mean, a lot of trial and error. Um, when you, one thing I learned when I was designing spray nozzles and, and then really when I started designing a reservoir too, is that whatever you think water or oil or any kind of liquid is going to do when it's flowing around or through some type of geometry, it's usually completely the opposite of what you expect it to do. And I, you know, the, the first concept that I had that I made and glued together and started pumping water through it, it was 180 degrees opposite of what I was trying to achieve. And, and uh, <laughs> But eventually I, I did find um, the design that was giving me what I was looking for, for how it functioned and, and what it was doing. And so I, I Worked up some drawings. The guys down at Big B made some prototypes. They put them on their cars, ran them all 2018. I didn't, you know, I had registered my business at that point just so I could start kind of keeping track of my expenses and, you know, writing all that off and everything. But, um, you know, I didn't really, nobody knew what I was working on at that time. I didn't tell anybody, you know, publicly. I didn't have a Facebook page. I didn't have any of this or that. Um, and it wasn't until 2019 that I said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with this reservoir design that I'm happy with it? It works. I think I had filed a provisional patent on it at that point. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, am I going to start a business to make reservoirs? Am I going to start a steering company? Should I just try to sell this design to a PSC or some other, you know, a steering company out there? Um, and I had, you know, all of these ideas for what my business could be. Actually, when I first registered the business name with uh, the state of Massachusetts, it wasn't Radial Dynamics. It was actually, I had initially registered as Radial Fluid Solutions. Because Ooh, I had, that's got a good ring to it, man. Eh, I, I, liked, I liked Dynamics better. Um, mm. It's but, simpler. No. It's 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 a, it's a simpler name. I don't know. Yes. My my brain liked it. It tickled well. I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> so like my dynamics. I yeah. I I'm glad I made the change that I did. Um, because my initial thought was that you know maybe I should be like a fluid dynamics engineering company or, you know the the way that the vortex reservoir worked that it, it's separating air or gas and liquid so should i go into like liquid gas separators and try to hit the industrial market or you know i had such a broad view of what the business could be and what i had to make the decision what did i want it to be what did i actually want to pursue um so i you know filed as radial fluid solutions thinking i'd really be kind of like a fluid dynamic focused engineering company or something like that and then about a week later i thought radial dynamics damn that sounds a lot better so i went <laughs> back and i you know filed an amendment and, and did all that um and i'm i'm glad i did and and over over time so it started off i went into business making reservoirs and when i started in 2019 i launched my social media page um i don't think i had the website up at 
the time, but I started just doing, I launched my uh, Facebook page, Instagram and YouTube. And the first, you know, I, I didn't even have anything to sell uh, for the first four or five months. I had the design, I had the concept of what I was going to sell, but I just launched the page and I started doing tech videos. And I had, you know, the kind of very, very uh, haphazardly thrown together pump test stand that I had built just to get some of my initial um, testing done. But I started doing, I, I had one video where I showed what happens with a pressurized reservoir versus a vented reservoir. And I had a sight glass in the feed hose going between the reservoir to the pump. And I, in one continuous shot, I had a, a 15 PSI pressurized reservoir showing the sight glass and it's all nice and clear and the pump was running. And then I took the cap off and all of a sudden you couldn't see through that sight glass anymore because it was just all cavitation bubbles. I remember wow. watching and, some of those videos. They were super cool. Yeah. it Like I was absolutely nobody. Nobody knew who I was. And I launched this, you know, this was like the second thing I had posted was this video. And all of a sudden it reached, it had a reach of like 13,000 people. And I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> um, and it ended up, I mean, it, that video alone got me in front of the right eyes at the right organizations because of, you know, mutual friends or people on Facebook that I knew through racing that shared it. And it ended up, um, you know, it was about six months later and I had really just started making and selling reservoirs at this point that I got a call from Monster Jam. And they said, we've been having some steering problems and we're interested in your thoughts. Would you be willing to come down here and you know, what? do a consultation? What? And yeah, like, what the that's fuck? Wow. okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, like I had just gone into business. I was just posting tech videos for the most part. And it was, it was getting a lot of attention and they, yeah, that, july i went down to to their headquarters in florida they had a truck that they had just finished building um and they said you know we've been going through this many pumps in the last year across their fleet of it's about 55 trucks that they operate um and i started going through it i said well this is these are the things that i found when i got involved in ultra four and we're talking very similar flow rates and uh you know the the equipment on the monster trucks is a good bit bigger, but all the concepts are exactly the same. So I brought a flow meter with me. We were able to actually confirm what the pumps were putting out at different engine speeds. And I had my program that I had developed. And so I'm plugging all the numbers in and, okay, you guys made a change last year in your RAM sizes and your orbital sizes. And here's what your drivers are giving you feedback about, you know, why it's not working as good. And here's the numbers that describe why. And this is what we need to do to fix it. And they said, wow, nobody's ever just come in here and and said, yeah, I can fix this before. They're like, we've hired you know different hydraulics companies to come in. And they told us that we need a 30-gallon oil tank. And we're like, yeah, that's not happening. And I said, yeah, that's because in the hydraulics world, in industrial and, and mobile hydraulics, reservoirs are typically sized to hold two minutes worth of oil. So if we're running 15 gallons per minute, they're going to tell you, you need a 30 gallon tank. And obviously nobody's putting a 30 gallon oil tank on a, a monster bomb. truck. Just oh, for, yeah, for steering. <laughs> I said, but I've got this reservoir design and I can, 
I can make a tweak to it internally that allows it to work upside down and the trucks are doing backflips and bicycles and all this crazy stunts now. So I can make my reservoir do what you need. And then we can also make all these other changes. Um, we changed hose sizes. We changed where the filter was located and where the pressure relief valve was located and, and all of that. And I mean, it was kind of a long-term project. Fortunately, I was not very busy at the time because I was still pretty much unheard of. Um, and yeah, ended up, you know, built some prototypes that following winter went out to, to Minneapolis. They had their last stadium show of the season was their first time testing some prototypes. They put uh, four trucks that had Vortex reservoirs on them um, and they worked out great. And they said, all right, yeah, we're, we're going to do the whole fleet. What? And so I spent the first three months, the first two months of 2020 was just strictly uh, from January through March. It, that was, that was what I did at, you know, every single night I'd get home from work and I would be assembling and testing monster jam reservoirs. Um, you know, I had a, a guy locally that does the welding for me. He'd drop them off on a Tuesday night. I'd get them sandblasted. I'd paint them the next night. I'd put labels on them, flush out, you know, flush them with oil and, and just do some rust prevention and then get them all loaded up and ready to go out on a, on a, you know, pallet on Friday. And I could only do so many per week. So I said, I'm going to ship out a pallet every Friday. And the, you know, that was, that was such a big stepping stone for the company, for, for me growing this business. Cause I finally had you know some revenue and some money to actually start doing more. Um, and I remember the very last shipment that I sent was the Friday that everything shut down for COVID. So FedEx had come, I loaded them up with a pallet and I'm, you know, doing all this out of my house, called my contact on a monster jam. I said, yep, I just shipped out the last pallet. It's all, all set. And he said, all right, well, we just canceled all of our shows this weekend. And then, you know, lo and behold, you know, two years later, things were just getting back going again. Um, so it was kind of a, a surreal, you know, timing is everything when, uh, when that happened. Um, but, you know, for me, it, it kind of worked out to my benefit because then as everybody was under lockdown and at home and spending more time researching, spending more time working on their projects because they can't go anywhere and spending more time researching the parts that they're about to buy, that was in many ways it allowed my business to grow pretty rapidly um, throughout COVID because of that and because of the fact that I was really trying to do a lot of tech content and why certain products need to be used or are better than others. That is so sick. Like that is so cool. So like, was that your first big like contract to where you were actually selling your product that you took oh, yeah. the, the time to patent? Yep. Um, my what? patent. So the patent got issued. Uh, the, the final patent got issued for the reservoir in 2021, January, 2021. So another year fast forward. But when I got that, that order with monster jam i mean that was that was three times you know that one order was valued three times what i had sold in all of 2019 which i mean to be honest my first year in 2019 that was i, I didn't really do all that much business um it was still just trying to get my name out there and and to to create something um but 
yeah, with, with that step, I was able to, I started taking on, that's when I became a dealer for PSC. I said, okay, I really need to be able to do complete steering systems. So I became a PSC dealer, started stocking, um, you know, their pumps and cylinders and orbitals. And that allowed me to, to actually, you know, put together full systems for people. And then as time went on, you know, I kind of started taking on more and more. Like when I first got started, I really had never dealt with rear steer before. Um, so I was still really just, I, I knew all the concepts, how to design a, a hydraulic steering system, but I was still learning like, okay, what is the best way to do rear steer? What different types of valves are there? What are people using? Um, and so over time I was able to kind of build my product catalogs as I, you know, as I grew the the company did as well. Um, and, you know, that continued to, you know, for the next two years afterwards, um, was just starting to take on more and more and, and really, really finding a niche as, you know, being able to design and engineer and build totally custom steering systems. So having done all of the work for like Monster Jam and having all of, I, I knew every single detail about how that system is designed and what their flow rates are and, and rams and how much force they're producing and all of that. Um, I ended up, you know, kind of fell in with, uh, into a project designing a steering system for whistle and diesel on monster max two, which that was another kind of luck, uh, you know, lucky break. He had made a post on Instagram at one point saying, I'm redesigning Monster Max 2. I need a hydraulics engineer to design the steering system. And at this point, there were enough people that were starting to recognize my name and, and knew, uh, you know, knew me and, and Radial Dynamics that I got tagged in that. And I reached out you know, a couple times and said, I've designed all the, you know, did all the engineering on Monster Jam systems. Whatever you're building, I can, I feel confident that I can help you with it. And he said, okay, yeah, cool. So we had a call and I'm like, all right, so can you tell me about the truck? What, you know, I could basically give you a full mo standard monster truck steering system. And he goes, well, no, the truck's going to be about 40 or 50,000 pounds and, you know, this and that. I'm like, holy crap, that's, <laughs> that's four times the weight of, of a Gravedigger truck. Um, wow. You know, there's, and he goes, I still want it to be, you know, three Wait, quick turns lock quick. to lock. Yeah. It's, and you were speaking directly to Cody or one of the guys who was building it, just to clarify. Well, at the time, so I was talking to Cody, asking him about details about the truck. When I started getting into the specifics of designing the system, he did hand me off to um, to Don from uh, Patty Tires and D&D mm -hmm. uh, Patty. And he's the one that was really, we kind of worked out all the technical details on everything. Um, but, you know, I, he goes, Cody was like, well, it's going to be 40 or 50,000 pounds. It's going to have, you know, the world's biggest tires on it. The axles alone weigh, uh, you know, however many tons each of those were. I can't remember off the top of my head. And I'm sitting there saying, geez, okay, he he wants it to still drive like a truck. He wants three turns lock to lock. He wants, you know, wants the steering to feel normal. I'm like, there's nothing out there existing really that is exactly what that that resembles this truck that I can just like pull numbers from and and designs. So I kind of had to just basically take my monster truck 
engineering numbers and scale them up by a factor of four, which is exactly what I did. Um, so I ended up having to get a pump that was four times as large of a displacement as what I typically put on a monster truck. I ended up having Eaton custom make a 45 cubic inch orbital valve, which normally, like if you look at a, an orbital from PSC, um, we're talking seven to 14 cubic inches. Jesus. So wow. three times, I mean, it, it ended up being... So because the truck has two motors, a front motor and a, a rear engine, I put one pump per engine and it's independent front and rear steer systems. But each pump ends up drawing if if he's at a couple thousand RPM and at full pressure, that's 50 horsepower per pump. So it's a 100 horsepower steering system in this truck. Oh, but it was, <laughs> it was just totally surreal that like, Okay, I'm I'm the one designing this. That like nobody's ever built a steering system this big and this powerful for motorsports before. I mean, yeah, you look at heavy equipment and you know dozers and excavators, and there's high-powered hydraulics in those. But when it comes to trucks, you know, motorsports trucks, it, it just didn't exist. Yeah, the only thing I could think of that would be even remotely close would be like a smaller size haul truck for uh, mm -hmm. mining. Yeah, and those those would be similar, although they have such larger hydraulics on them already that they're able to to tap into for the steering. Like, yeah, don't they use it, hydraulic transmissions or something like that? A lot of times, yeah. I mean, it depends on depends on the exact model and, and the truck, but yeah, there's a lot of when you get into heavy industry stuff like that. There's there's a lot of different ways that that they can do things. Yeah, it was just one of those things that popped into my mind as far as like the amount of weight that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Also, I kind of have to ask out of curiosity, Cody seems like a genuinely decent dude to deal with, right? Like, he was yeah, uh, you know, he um, I, I, he is he is a genuine guy to deal with. Um, he didn't. Uh, I'll say that he didn't try to use his YouTube fame to get a free system or anything like that. It was just, this is what I wanted to do. I want you to design it for me and send me the bill. And, you know, he, oh. he was just straight up and he said, I, I'm going to have you talk to Don, the guy that's building the truck, because Don knows more about the technical details. And so Don and I were able to work together, but um, you know, it, he was just, he was straight up easy to deal with. And yeah, uh, really decent guy that uh I, I would have no problems doing business with again that's oh, cool yeah. to hear uh the reason i asked about that is i know someone through the gun stuff that's kind of worked with him and he said that he was awesome to deal with so yeah i was just curious yeah absolutely no complaints here now I'm assuming you saw this as a pretty decent advertisement thing. Now, did you discuss with him anything like that? Or was it just straight, you built it, he sent you money, and it was like a shake hands, see you later kind of deal? Um, there was, he, he has given me a little bit of, he's given me some credit in some of his videos. Uh, when that truck was about 50% complete through its latest build, um, he did uh, just kind of a walk around video showing all of the the build process that was going into it. And he did, you know, call me out specifically saying, yeah, I got this, you know, 
crazy scientist wizard that designed the <laughs> the steering system uh, from radial dynamics, and um, you know, it, we didn't really have anything kind of formal, or you know, it wasn't like I'll I'll do this if you give me you know whatever exposure. Um, but you know, certainly he he has made it known he's not hiding that it was me or anything. And uh, oh yeah, you know, it's been. Kind of just a, a neat feather in my cap. Not that I expect to sell another system like that anytime soon. Yeah, that's soon, definitely but... a one-off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's kind of on my resume of like this is this is the stuff that I can can do and can handle. Yep. Yeah, that's that's awesome, dude. Like as far as the scope of that project too, it's crazy to think that it's taking a hundred horsepower just to run the steering on that. Yep, and I mean it. It just it had to, but so, it it works. My nerd brain is going off because Ultra 4 has been in the back of my mind. What kind of horsepower numbers are going into the hydraulic steering system on a 4400 class car? So a 4400 class car, if they are, uh, I guess there's kind of, I can break it up into two different classes. So there's the guys that are at the top of the 4400 class, or at least the ones that are willing to pay for like the trophy truck steering pumps or my new RDT steering pump, um, which will provide the ultimate performance, but it is a high horsepower pump. And with those pumps, when you're spinning 6,000 RPM uh, shaft speed on the pump and you're you know, at pressure, that will easily consume 20 to 30 horsepower. Which, wow. in the grand scheme of things, with the horsepower numbers that some of those cars are putting down, I think that that's a very minimal parasitic loss compared to drivetrain. Yeah, um, you know, it's certainly there's a lot of there are a lot of losses in a 4400 car just to turn you know the tires you know, to turn four tires um, with everything that you've got to go through through the transmission, the transfer case, and, and the axles, um, and it's you know, it's the trade-off in being able to handle better and, and have better drivability allows drivers to make up a lot more speed than they would lose just from that, you know, 30 horsepower. Oh yeah. 100%. Um, guys that are on you know, generally either not competing at as high of a level or on a tighter budget would uh, generally be using one of the smaller pumps, like a TC pump, or, you know, some people use CBRs or, any of like the the smaller type two um, pumps, um, and those still can reach easily up into the you know twelve to twenty horsepower depending on conditions and valve tuning and all of that. Meanwhile, if you put that on a four liter, you're gonna be fucking strangling all the life out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why you know if if somebody calls with a, a little four cylinder, normally I'm not. You know, not going to be recommending a, a trophy truck pump for something like that <laughs> because at idle you're going to hit full lock and then the engine's just going to stall out and you know it's it it ends up being just a matter of fundamental um you know for a, a pump a given pump displacement and pressure i can calculate how much horsepower that's going to take and at the end of the day, if that horsepower is greater than what your engine's producing at idle then which <laughs> many times it is then uh yeah, you're going to not really enjoy it. That's that interesting. Yeah. Luke, you sound really sad since we had to uh, uh, tell you to not interject in the middle of that, 
that other. You know there. what? Uh, was... What did we? What did we take from you? Let's let's hear that that question that you had at that point no, in time. I'm not, I'm not sad. I got a phone call in the middle. That's why I got uh, distracted and was away for a little while. Uh, I really would not rather get into it. It's I'm all good. It's just you, but... honestly, I did want to apologize, Luke, that I told you to shut up violently. It was just, it was like he was at like the pinnacle of his story. He was about to, you know, spread his wings, and then you're just like, "Hey, I have a question." <laughs> like, <laughs> Luke, <shut up." laughs> like, so I do typical, apologize. This is a typical Lukeism. <laughs> yeah, that's how I work. It, you flip the switches, and like eventually the railroad tracks collide, and there's an idea there. Um, so now. With the way that the steering systems work, I might have missed it while I had the phone call, but if you put more volume in the system, in the cooler, would that not effectively help the pump because you're reducing the overall temperatures while increasing the amount of fluid volume that is circulating? Absolutely. Made... Okay. Yep. Yeah, so um, that's absolutely valid. And yeah, that was when I designed my cooler uh, that I sell. That was one of the big things I was looking at. So my cooler looks very similar to some others on the market. Um, you know, when, when we talk about the log style or the, the heat sink style coolers, people like the have trans- different names for them. Like the inline uh, transmission style coolers, like that style for the automatics? I think he's no, talking about it, the inline aluminum ones where it's like a long bar with a bunch of fins on it. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah. And so there's, I mean, there's all different styles. Some of them, you know, you can find some that are 50 bucks and they're, they're pretty cheap. Um, but then, you know, you've got mine that's five times that, you know, it's 300, $325. Um, but the reason is that they're very different, you know, even though people just see a long bar with fins on it the shape of those fins affects how much interaction you get with the air surrounding it. And then even internally, there are other things that I do in my cooler that allow it to work better as a cooler than others. So for instance, just the the fin comparison, um, actually anybody that goes on my website, one of the first things on my homepage shows a a CFD simulation that I did, um, a computer simulation of both fin styles in like a 35 mile an hour cross flow of air and with the lengthwise fins those those coolers are so cheap because you just buy the manufacturers will just make an aluminum extrusion so you've got this extruded aluminum you chop it to length you weld on two ports and it's good to go Um, so there's very little material waste there's very little manufacturing effort that goes into it but you look you know, through one side to the other, the flow goes straight through. Um, and then with that lengthwise fin design, you've essentially got a whole bunch of little truck tailgates that, yeah. you know, the, the whole truck bed argument that went on for decades and Mythbusters addressed, um, you create these stagnant pockets of air, which helps reduce gas mi- or increase gas mileage in a pickup truck, but for a cooler isn't really a great design. Because now all of your air just goes around the cooler entirely. Um, So it's more efficient to make the circular fins. But in order to do that, you have to start with a big piece of bar stock. And you have to turn each fin individually into that that shape. 
I'm trying to bite my tongue on this, but it's super cool to see that you actually went that route because the more surface area, or you get far more surface area out of each of those little individual cuts than you would across the entirety of the larger cuts. And mm -hmm. um, so my experience with this goes into suppressors uh, for firearms, but yep. by doing that, you re or you exponentially increase the area of cooling much like knurling will on a uh, suppressor or the ribs on a suppressor will. So that was, I right. saw that and I was like, instantly, that makes a shit ton of sense to me. I have yeah. a question. Yep. Uh, sorry, that was like, I feel like a child in elementary school right now. Like, I this is so far above my pay grade. So, like, everything is super fucking cool to me. With your reservoirs, is that why you have like a fin design on them as well as to kind of act as like a semi cooler while the fluid is sitting in there? Yeah, um, that that's the idea behind it. Now that reservoir in particular, I've got the the picture of it as just like kind of my generic custom reservoir. That is one that when I made the first prototypes or designed the first prototypes for Big B Motorsports, they said, you know, of course I'm looking at this saying, "Oh my god, we need to get so much more oil into these systems and we need to cool it." And, you know, we've I mean, the temperatures that they see now in their steering system is like 150 degrees less than before I started working with them. Wow. Um, but they said, okay, cool. We're going to do this. We're going to, you, you come up with your vortex design. We'll make it and we'll run it. And we'll, you know, this was before the business even really started. Um, they said, we'll, we'll make it. Cause they've got a big machine shop down there. Um, do tons of manufacturing. So I designed it and they said, here's a CAD model of the front you know, front section of our car, here's the pocket that you've got to try to make this thing fit. So I took up every cubic inch that I could to maximize oil volume. And they said, we want it finned because we want to get maximum cooling. And okay, so I started adding fins. Now we want more <laughs> fins. And so, uh, yeah, it, it ended up being what you see there. And honestly, I've, I've never, I've got Two of those myself, um, one that's on my personal, my pump dyno here at the shop, and then another one that I have just kind of like a, as, a, as a display unit, really. Um, I've never sold one because if I had to sell one, it would be like $4,000 to make that whole thing. It's a solid chunk of Holy billet that it starts shit. as. I mean, like it would just, in order to like to make money on it, it would have to be ridiculously expensive. And nobody's really willing. I, I've already have the most expensive reservoirs on the market. Nobody's willing to pay that much. <laughs> um, yeah. It is cool though. That's a cool reservoir. It is. It's looks it's like really, nothing else. Yeah, it's it's really neat. But if you went and bought my four inch, my standard four inch vortex reservoir, that is fundamentally the same reservoir. I just took that four inch reservoir, made the whole thing out of billet, added fins, and gave it on the upper half, made it a little bit bigger so we could stuff a little bit more oil in there. Um, but honestly, every Profi truck pump setup that I've done since then has just been a standard four-inch reservoir. That is so fucking cool. So but. now this is where the poor bastard in me comes into play. Because <laughs> um, I love your stuff. Just some of it is like, I'll happily buy the pump. And the orbital through you. I don't know if I'm paying that much for a reservoir, but or a cooler. Um, what is your take on the multi-layered, like the uh, plate and fin coolers? 
I now I'm approaching this from like the dirt poor side of motorsports mm-hmm. here. Um, but I've always had incredibly good luck on my old Jeep with, uh, it had a Hayden, it was a triple stack cooler and it ended up, I think it was like a gallon and a half of extra capacity, uh, was added to the system and I put it right in front of the mechanical fan. But I just was curious as to what your thoughts on that style are. So what I normally tell people is that the, you know, like a, a tube and fin cooler like that, or like your typical transmission cooler with a fan on it is almost always going to be more efficient at transferring heat than a a log style cooler, even like the ones that I make. Um, The trade-off is that, you know, if, if it's got a fan, now you got to worry about, you know, your fan switch or thermostat or whatever. Um, The other big thing is, really paying close attention to how much flow rate one of those coolers can handle. So especially when we start getting up into the higher flow uh, steering pumps and and higher flow steering applications, I find that there have been a number of, a number of times where I've helped customers that what we ultimately found was that their cooler was too restrictive and that the amount of flow rate their pump was pushing through it was resulting in a pressure drop from the inlet to the outlet um, or creating back pressure. And when you have a pressure drop like that without doing any work, you're generating heat. So in some cases I've even seen, you know, the cooler becomes such a restriction that it's creating more heat than it's, than it's dissipating. That's super interesting. Yeah. And so as long as, as long as the internal flow path, you know, the, the tube size that, the oil's actually traveling through as long as that's large enough for the flow rate that you're in a normal oil velocity, um, then it's going to be more efficient. The other trade-off is especially like for the off-road racers that, you know, you got to think an ultra four car that's chasing down another car and they're just getting sprayed with rocks at the front of the car. Something like one of those transmission style coolers that's got really sensitive fins, or if it's like a radiator style cooler, um, how many times have we seen like a rock get thrown through and and create mm-hmm. a hole? Yes. Um, or, or just the vibration, you know, shaking these things to create a leak. Um, I actually just down at Good Evening Ranch two weeks ago um, for X Rock. There's a guy that uh, doesn't normally do a lot of high RPM stuff as a rock crawler, but they had some barrel races that night under the the horse stadium, which was or the horse arena, which was really cool. And he was running full throttle and his pump was such a high flow rate that he ended up, he had a transmission style cooler with a fan on it, but he actually split the tanks on both sides of it because it was too restrictive for how much flow rate he was wow. pushing. Wow, that's nutty. Um, and- I suppose line size also plays into it, right? Because if you're getting one of the style where you maintain a similar line size to what the original feed line is, assuming mm-hmm. the original feed line's acceptable, then you're not going to run into that issue. But if you run into like one of the more restrictive plate style coolers, not the style where it's essentially the big aluminum coils, mm-hmm. yeah, that all makes perfect sense. And yeah, it tracks 100%. Yeah, so it's really, I mean, you've got your trade-off in one's more efficient, but a little bit more fragile or delicate, and you have to really pay closer attention to how much flow it can handle. The other one might not be as high of a a heat exchanger efficiency, um, but it can take some 
pretty serious abuse. You don't have to worry about poking a hole in it. You can pretty much stick it anywhere. Um, ideally, someplace that has you know decent airflow. But yeah, they've all got their trade-offs. And and the question is, you know, how much one might be more efficient at transferring heat than the other, but how much heat do you really need to transfer? And a lot of that also has to do with how the steering system's set up, what size RAM you're running, you know, what pump you're using. There's so many different factors that play into, you know, each of these equations for for heat load in a steering system. Yeah, um, that makes 100% sense. Um, I'm sorry, I'm like, I don't mean to keep interjecting. I'm just learning a yeah. lot here, and it's making me think about the way that I want to do the next system. Um, now, is using that as a means to bolster the fluid capacity a bad idea, or is that not hurting anything or a positive? Um, I mean, it's it's certainly. I always promote trying to get as much oil into the system as possible, um, and it's one of the reasons that I do. I do things a certain way when I set up the steering system, especially when I'm getting into the high horsepower, you know, trophy truck pump setups. Um, there's, yes, increasing the oil capacity in the cooler also increases the residence time. So even though my cooler with the round fins looks like another manufacturer that makes a cooler with round fins, there's a big difference there in that their cooler is gun drilled from end to end. You know, yep. they've got dash 10 ORB ports, whatever the minor diameter of that dash 10 port thread size is, that's what they've gun drilled through. So you've got very little volume, which means at 13 gallons per minute, your oil has point something like 0.15 seconds that it yeah. passes from the inlet to the outlet. And then it also ends up, because it's just gun drilled, but the fins externally look very similar to mine, you end up with like a half inch thick aluminum wall between the ID of the oil flow yeah. path and, that's and not the base really helping. of the fence. No, it's, it's, it's not doing much. So in mine, I basically made, made it a three-piece assembly. So the main body by itself is a much larger diameter. And then I've got flow diffusers that are built into the port ends. So that oil doesn't just pass straight through and create a hot core. It's forced to create a little bit of turbulence and transfer its heat to the wall, to the aluminum wall, which then goes out to the fins. And in hydraulics, and you know, when people are talking about steering systems and hydraulics, they hear the word turbulence and everybody naturally just pictures it's this dirty word that it's <laughs> damaging your steering system and it's it's you know it's not good. But the reality is that, you know, whether it's a steering system or, you know, the the air conditioner, the HVAC system in your home or, or where you work, you can't have heat transfer without turbulence. Yep. So it's it's a matter of designing turbulence without creating a restriction or damaging the system, but it's you know not necessarily a bad thing when it's turbulent in the right part of the system. Now at the pump inlet, we don't want turbulence there. That's a bad thing. But in the cooler, that's, that's the wrong heat transfer. Cooler. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that is so fucking cool. This is so much knowledge that it intake that I'm like blown away right now. Wow. 
And not to mention, like one of you, when you uh, on your web page, you can go to your four inch reservoir and you actually show the flow, which I figured would have been like the like most close niche secret that you could have. And it's so fucking cool. Sorry that I keep swearing, but like, dude, what? And it's just yeah, so cool I- that you actually showed it and like you're willing to show like how this system works, and that's awesome. So cool. Yeah, I was, I was, I kept it pretty pretty tight to my chest before the patent got issued. Um, mm-hmm. That was a, a two-year process to wow. file a provisional, kind of make sure that the design was what I wanted and that I was trying to cover cover all of the, um, make all the claims that I wanted to cover and then file a non-provisional and you got to wait another year and a half and go back and forth with the patent examiner and clarify a bunch of stuff. and. Um, Eventually, it ended up getting split into two patents because I was trying to cover too much variation of how it could be made or this or that. So I ended up just filing two of them. But once that patent got issued, um, I decided that it would be more valuable to show off what it's doing internally because that that visual. So the the video that I show on my website, and I've posted it on social media plenty of times as well. Um, that's the actual acrylic model that I came up with the idea back in like winter of 2017 into 2018. That's the piece that I used to develop the design and, and start the business. Um, so now I use it for that marketing content and uh, being able to actually show off what it's doing because when people see that it hits them like, Oh wow, that is why that reservoir is, you know, that much more expensive and that's it's you know they're not cheap to make it's not like i'm just trying to make a you know a, an enormous profit on it i still gotta you know run a business but um they are a very expensive reservoir to produce because it has such a specialized flow network internally um but yeah being able to show that off really kind of drives home the point of like this is this is not just your average reservoir yeah i feel like you almost need that the the diagram showing it how it's different than just a aluminum cylinder with ports on it right because yep. you could just weld bungs on that put a cap on it and call it a day and it would not be the same thing at right. all i have seen some pretty crazy stuff so in in at my last job when i was doing industrial pump systems i was tasked with designing a um, i put together a, a spray booth that we could take to trade shows and it was something kind of similar on a much larger scale. I got a three foot diameter acrylic tube that was like four feet tall and I would fill the bottom of it with 50 gallons of water. And then I had a pump underneath that would just kind of recirculate up to the top so we could spray different nozzles and show customers at a trade show. Like this is what this nozzle does versus this nozzle. But the outlet going to the pump was in the center bottom of this big three foot diameter vertical tank, basically. and under the right conditions, even without even with a relatively low flow rate being pulled by the pump, it would create this air vortex. So like if you ever as maybe I'm dating myself here, but as a kid I had this little coupler that you take two two liter soda bottles and you screw them together and you fill up one with water and then you could swirl it around and make a little tornado that goes mm-hmm. from top to the bottom. I yep. remember those. I'm not that old. <laughs> I, I'm definitely younger than you, but I remember stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. So it would basically create a vortex like that, that would span, it would be like 18 inches deep from the surface all the way down to that outlet port. And it would just be this little tornado of air 
getting pulled down into the pump. And I've had a couple, I, I remember one of the early, um, back when I was first getting started in steering, um, one of my early customers had, he bought a pump from me and reservoir, which is just a big square, you know, rectangular box. And it was, um, he had the outlet port center bottom going out to his pump and was fighting cavitation issues. And that was kind of one of the things that I was looking at was like, well, maybe there could be a vortex of air that's just getting pulled down into the pump right now and, and causing issues. And I think that was, you know, one of, one of those things, but these are, it's like, this is the type of stuff that nobody would ever really think that you're just going to have a little vortex of air pulling through oil or water that's that deep, but it, it can happen. Fluid dynamics and heat interaction are absolutely insane. Yep. And I'm, I'm still testing and learning every day about this stuff. I'm learning that pumps can be finicky and there's, uh, you know, it's, there are very, very, very tight tolerances that we're dealing with to make the difference between a pump that's loud and a pump that's not. Um, and I even have you know days that I struggle now that I'm like Jesus, this one pump is just driving me nuts. I'm going to set this one aside and then I'll come back to it. And yeah, I could. It's way too easy for me to lose an entire day just trying to like R and D and experiment and figure out why things are you know certain things do what they do. But at the end of the day, as long as I can learn something from it, then it's then it's a good day. Hell yeah. yeah. I know it's all kind of a ratio, right? Like between the pump size, the orbital, and the actual cylinder. But mm-hmm. do you run into a lot of issues where people are shooting themselves in the foot by picking this ram with this orbital and then trying to pair this pump up to it? And like, what kind of ways can you get around that? Yeah, constantly. Um, so. When I'm sizing a steering system, I start at the axle. And I'd say, you know, tell me about the vehicle, what you're building, what tire size you've got, how, um, what you're planning to do with this. Is this going to be a crawler? Is this going to be a trail rider? Is this racing? You know, and all of those factors play into, okay, I, I feel like you're, you know, based on my experience and dealing with all these other vehicles, you're going to want to be in this range of you know steering force that you're producing or really ultimately what we're focused on is how much torque is being produced on the steering knuckle um people don't realize with ram selection that because because of uh the fact that you're steering ram the force that it produces at a given pressure is going to increase exponentially with diameter because if you increase you know if if you double your bore size, then you quadruple the force produced. Um, and when we start accounting for like a PSC RAM, a two and a half inch RAM or a three inch RAM, both have a one and a half inch diameter rod. So the piston area is, you know, that two and a half inch circle minus the one and a half inch circle in the center of it. When you and compare that volume, to the, right? uh, yeah, so the volume would, would be dependent on the stroke length as well. Um, if we're looking at force, then that's just the piston surface area. And you know, for a, a given pressure, so let's say at seventeen or eighteen hundred psi, 
a two and a half inch double-ended ram, whether it's, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's eight inches or 10 inch stroke, that ram at that pressure is going to produce around 5,500 pounds of force. But if you take a three inch ram at the same pressure, which is only, it's an extra half inch diameter, but it ends up being about 9,500 pounds of force at the same pressure. So you're almost doubling, not quite doubling, 40%, uh, or rather 80% increase. Um, but for a given orbital size, now the number of turns that it takes to go from lock to lock, because you have that much more volume, um, is inversely proportional. So it's all about trying to find that balance of the vehicle use, how much force it needs, how many turns lock to lock. Somebody that's racing Ultra 4, I want to try to set up around two and a quarter to two and a half turns lock to lock, because that's going to be very drivable and um, at speed and in the canyons when they've got to crawl over boulders and really throw the car back and forth versus a trail rider, somebody that's rock crawling. Well, if you're at three and a half turns or even four turns lock to lock, um, especially if it's like a 50 degree steering axle, then that's still very drivable. And it, um, you know, kind of affects what orbital we need and, and how much flow rate we really need from the pump to keep up with it. So yeah, all of those factors need to be balanced out. And I do see a lot of instances where, you know, somebody has a system that is set up with mismatching components and it's a matter of, um, you know, what's going to be the, what's going to be the simplest solution to get them where they need to go. Um, whether that's changing out the RAM size, which takes a little bit more work to you know rework the mounts and all of that. Orbitals are really easy to change out because it's just four bolts and four ports and they pretty much all bolt in place of each other. Um, sometimes we can just swap the pump to get, you know, get things where they need to be, but it's really comes down to a case by case basis. Hmm. That is so, so cool. With like, if you're trying to get, say like a, right in that sweet spot, we're going to call it like the trail buggy area, like two and three quarter, two and a half turns. With a standard eight inch, two and a half diameter RAM, you're going to want somewhere in the realm of what would it be like the nine, 9.3, I think it is, Eaton Orbital? Yeah, let me, uh, let me plug in some numbers into my spreadsheet here. So <laughs> two, two and a half by eight RAM, um, if you're running a 9.7 cubic inch orbital, you'd have two and 2.6 turns lock to lock. Damn, perfectly, I was on a good fucking guess drivable. there. Yeah, um, I would say that a lot of trail rigs uh, will, with that size RAM, will generally end up even with maybe one size smaller orbital. Um, so either a seven point three or seven seven point five orbital uh, cubic inch, and that puts you right around uh, three and a quarter or three and a half turns lock to lock. Um, you know, with with the smaller orbital, you can get by with a lower flow rate pump. The larger the orbital, the higher flow the pump needs to be. And the higher flow the pump is, the more critical it is to make sure that you know, we've got to pay closer attention to the hose sizes and the reservoir selection and how it's all set up and reservoir pressure and things of that nature. So I'm generally trying to size a system to be as small as needed or low flow or low horsepower as needed to satisfy what the vehicle is going to be doing. 
So I'm not trying to detract from your business at all with asking this question, but is there any like good off the shelf um, options out there at this point? Are like, you shopping, Luke, or are you asking this question? I'm just he's literally having him build a system right now. Well, no, 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 because I can. Fact. To to be fair, though, the average listener is going to be having this style of a rig. So to be fair, I can totally understand. But I was just curious, Luke, are you writing this stuff down, or is this just for? I am writing this stuff down. He doesn't have to. He can just listen to the podcast again. He's got a shopping list. Just had but to also, ask. I'm asking because like. For example, if you're talking about, correct me if I'm wrong, but the majority of the steering pump designs come from several base model pumps, right? So, like, you've got the, in, there's the Chevy truck, I forget what it is, I think that's the TC style, or the P-pump style Saginaw's, Mm -hmm. and then the Cherokees run a modified version of that as well, Um, and... I'm just curious about it because, like, the ability to go and pick something up and get a close idea to where it is, it's not going to be at the same quality level, obviously, as a radial dynamics. Like, I'm going to go and buy a radial dynamics pump when I do my hydro system. It's also going to be a surplus center ram and a rebuilt orbital, but it's going to have a radial (laughs) dynamics pump. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm just curious though because like if that were ever to fail, I'm not saying that a radial dynamics were to fail. What ends up being a viable like part store alternative, or is there not a viable part store alternative? Um, and that's partially curiosity from my time spent on Pirate, where everyone back then was going and buying. I think it was the K series pumps, and they were running them with a separate reservoir as a cheaper means of putting that stuff together yeah there's i mean so every single mass-produced oem vehicle out there has you know generally speaking it will be one of a few different types of pumps but then they all have their own uh each each model has its own settings for flow and pressure. The other things that vary between them would be like the port, the port type. So some of them, not many that you would find off the shelf from someplace like AutoZone or O'Reilly's or one of those are going to be, if you're getting an aftermarket pump, it's probably got threaded inlets and outlets. Um, and a lot of OEM applications, they're not threaded. So they're designed to have like a plastic molded reservoir with an o-ring on it that just slides into a, a smooth bore on the pump inlet and that's how it that's how it seals and of course when we're doing off-road stuff those don't really last or work out all that well um so we're oftentimes setting them up for remote reservoirs so if you have if you have a system that's set up even let's say with you know one of my tc pumps that's threaded ports inlet and outlet um and you're set up for that and you need to go grab a parts store pump you can't just grab one of those there's there's no pump out there that i can tell you to get at autozone that you could just bolt in place because you're going to end up having the plumbing's not going to match up Um, that makes sense yeah and you know i i generally try to avoid parts store pumps unless it's uh an absolute necessity because of course, if you go to a parts store, you're going to get a remand pump most of the time. And remands are a total crapshoot. Sometimes you can get one that's in decent condition. A lot of times they're worn internally. Um, But 
yeah, the the aftermarket ones all really do begin for the most part as some base model OEM pump, and uh, you know the the aftermarket pumps usually have a good bit of valve tuning that's done to them. I've uh, I've always tried to discourage people from trying to do their own hot rotting without having a you know better tools and understanding of what they're doing guilty i've <laughs> and i mean you can yeah to, to drill out the orifice and try to get a little bit more flow rate out of it is one thing it's very easy to drill it too big and then you end up with um you know cavitation and and Spray the painting pump. the roof on the ceiling yeah <laughs> uh but i've also the the bigger issue is when people try to change the the um pressure relief valve in them so i mean i know that there's blogs out there online that show you how to hot rod your pump and how to get more pressure out of it Don't i can tell the you spring they yeah pull the spring and then you know get a number two washer and stack two of them together and every pump because the factory the oems don't necessarily always supply the exact same springs the exact same you know internally could vary from pump to pump um, because they're they work with whatever springs they can get and they tune based on whatever that spring that particular spring rate is i have a whole library of pictures that i've been collecting over the years of uh p-pumps that have just completely split in half the whole cast housing Cracked That's in half amazing. because people, people, you know, stacked the two washers in there that the blog told them to, and uh, you know, in that particular pump, rather than being fifteen hundred psi, it was actually they were inadvertently changing it to two thousand psi, and the P pump castings are kind of weak by their design, and there's you know a particular split that I've seen multiple times, um. And, you know, at least with the P-pumps, it's all kind of contained in that sheet metal can, which is a whole nother issue that I just, I just don't touch P-pumps. Um, but I've seen some other uh, more, more common pumps that are on the market now. I won't get into which ones, but I've seen some of those split and have other pressure-related issues before as well. Um, so that's why, you know, I've, I always really make it a point that I'm, you know, from my own liability won't advise people on how to try and hot rod their pump because it's very easy to find yourself in that kind of position and doing something that could potentially be dangerous and, and overpressurizing the system. So I'm not going to name any names, but the reason I brought that up was uh, back in the day, I remember a person that I know fairly well. Um, he ended up modifying his pump and it was for a hydro assist, it blew the end of the steering box cleaned out of it <laughs> and oh. sent it into a Cherokee <laughs> front cross member denting Ooh. the cross member. Wow. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not stuff to be taken lightly. No, it's not. Um, but thanks for answering that set of questions, and uh, I most definitely did take notes there. <laughs> we couldn't tell um all right so what's what's the next adventure for radial dynamics i mean it seems like you got a pretty good handle on all of this is is it like you want to dive more into like other aspects of like wheeling rock crawling racing stuff like that or are you looking to more try to push towards the industrial side like you discussed earlier like what's the no, next five actually, years um so yeah when 
I was mentioning back when I first started the business, I had all this, I had a very broad view of things that I could do or was thinking that I might do. And over time, my focus has really become very narrow. Um, that I've, as I've really kind of found my niche in hydraulic steering specifically, um, you know, I don't touch steering boxes at this point. I don't touch rack and pinions. Maybe someday I might, but right now it's it's not even in my scope because the full hydro keeps me so busy. And that's not to say that I won't, you know, if somebody calls me and they're building a, a hydro assist system, I will gladly help them set it up and, you know, the pumps and the reservoirs and all that stuff is, again, has the same benefits for a hydro assist system as it does as a uh, full hydro. Um, but for me, the so last year was kind of a big step. I've been full-time self-employed for coming up on two years now that I've been doing this. Um, when I first quit my day job, I was working out of the house for, uh, really didn't have any plans at the time, any solid plans to move out of the house. I had a workshop in my garage and my office in my basement, but I was, I quickly about a year ago, year and a half ago was starting to drown in boxes of inventory. And if somebody ordered a complete system for me to go dig all the parts out from everywhere, it took so long that I was like, I need to need to find a space and timing worked out. Perfect. I found the, my dream shop that was a mile and a half away from the house. Um, perfect location. It's way bigger than what I need. But I just, I was like, I need to make this happen because then I can get a shop. Then I can think about hiring people and, and taking on more. Um, and so that's really, I ended up, I spent four months doing a mountain of paperwork last year and spending way more than I had ever planned on. Um, but I ended up last fall moved into this shop and it's been, it's been life-changing um, that I've actually got space to like spread out all my bits and pieces and be organized and have, you know, a separate workshop, a separate inventory and order fulfillment room. There's a garage here that I, I've got my buggy here. Um, and so it's really been, lately for the past six months, just about kind of getting settled in, trying to make my processes more efficient. The big thing for me was this past winter, um, I finally had the supply chain worked out and all the resources that I needed to start producing all of my pumps in-house, um, or final assembly and, and testing and, you know, creating my own brand of pumps. Um, wow. And so that's been, I mean, I've I've worked with a few different pump suppliers over the years and at the end of the day, you know, you always end up having issues or on several occasions have had issues. And even if it was, you know, something that was a problem from the original manufacturer, whoever, um, I take responsibility for it because it's I'm the one recommending this pump. If you've had a problem with it, I'm going to fix it for you. And I paid, especially last year, I paid a lot of tuition. Um, and in the process, learned a lot about how to build pumps and really what things to watch out for and, and how to make them better. Um, but yeah, bringing pumps in house this year, finally launching my RDT pump, that was a huge, huge step. That's been in, in R&D for uh, 
with about two years. I think I had started designing it a little before I, I quit my day job. Had it in prototype testing. So Big V Motorsports started running it in 2000, uh, 2022 at King of the Hammers. Um, running the first prototypes, ran them all year. And I finally got to reach a point where I was ready to launch those this winter. Those, that's really been kind of a, a big focus for me is is getting those out there on the market because it's it's comparable performance and specifications to a trophy truck steering pump, but it is so much better in every single way just because it's a fundamentally different design that ends up being more reliable, easier to service, um, safer in terms of how all of the seals are designed and where high pressure oil is kept. And because that ended up being such a different pump though, that's been a little slow to, to take off, um, which I knew it would just because it means that people need to design new mounting brackets for it and new pulleys and everything of that nature. But that's been gaining momentum. I'm starting to um, to see some attention from the desert racing world, which for me, I've really never had much presence until now outside of Ultra 4 when it came to desert racing. Um, but, you know, the pumps and everything that I've been working towards and the reservoirs, uh, really kind of the ultimate application for it is in the trophy trucks and the Class 1 cars. And so that's that's starting to you know, become a, a thing now that, um, you know, I've been, been talking to a few teams there and, uh, you know, so there's, you know, first just growing that whole side of the business, trying to balance out, okay, at what point do I start hiring staff and, and really taking the next step? Um, which I would say that, you know, hiring, I'm reaching that point where I need to, to start getting people. Cause it's, still just me here right now i'm a one-man show and it's the hours there's there's a few long nights here and there um as much as i enjoy you know i I don't mind the long nights but it's uh you know i'm I'm starting to see the limitations of of my own capacity so trying to manage that next step and then looking beyond that i'm i'm trying to focus on not again not just being another steering company but really trying to push the limits of what's possible. So um, one of the the big projects that I've been working on for the last year and a half has been high voltage electronic, uh, an electric power steering pump that operates on high voltage for electric vehicles, electric off-roaders. And there's, I've got five systems that are sort of early production that are out there in the field right now. three of those vehicles are still being built, but I had the first two that I got to go play with out at King of the Hammers this year. One being uh, Dave Cole's Hypercraft car, which was the first um, the first exhibition demo vehicle for the Ultra 4 Spec EV class. And uh, that was a big one. And then there was uh, Keith and Melissa Silva from Evolve Racing um, out of California. They entered... The, uh, they were the only ones to actually race King of the Hammers in the EV class this year. They had an old S10 rock crawler that they converted to a Tesla power plant. Um, and they put one of my high voltage steering systems in it. So I've had the chance with both of those cars out at Hammers this year to actually, you know, I did all this bench testing, got a high voltage power supply so we could work on controls and programming and all of that. But until you put it in a car and actually go drive it at, 
you know, 50 miles an hour, you don't really know how the steering is going to respond. Um, so that's been really exciting. I've been working on uh, new controls for that, and um, you know, that's that's making some progress. So along those lines, my buggy, which the Hayabusa motor is actually dead at this point, I kind of gave it a bit bit too many RPMs over the last <laughs> last few years. Um, now that the motor's dead and I was planning on starting a swap anyway, I'm going to be doing an electric conversion, um, pulling out the Hayabusa motor and going to a Tesla drivetrain in that, which will then give me my own, uh, my own platform that I can do further testing and development on this EV system. Um, so it's, it's really neat because with the EV stuff, you can really rethink what the steering system is you're not constrained you know a a traditional full hydro steering system is so difficult to really make it work properly because the pump you're obviously constrained to your engine speed your pump Mm -hmm. speed is constrained to engine speed um and so you have to be able to deliver decent flow rate when your engine's at low rpm without just killing the pump at high rpm so you know it you could have up to a 10 to one range of speeds that the pump has to handle. And you've got to try to make it work across all of that with an EV. You're not constrained to anything. So I can run a hydraulic pump at any speed at any time, regardless of whether the vehicle's moving or how fast it's moving or um, anything along those lines. So it kind of opens up a lot of new doors. A lot of the problems that we have with, um, with traditional steering pumps, I see things like belt alignment being an issue on a regular basis, um, over overspeeding the pump and causing cavitation and all that. Those issues don't exist with the EV pump setup, which it's, it's basically a high voltage uh, variable speed motor with a hydraulic pump attached on one end and a built-in inverter and, and onboard controls on the other end. Um, and I'm setting it up in a way that it operates on a semi on demand, uh, function. So it's basically, it's only spinning the pump as needed. And I've got certain controls and algorithms that I'm using to, to determine, to calculate what that speed needs to be and, and send that command to the pump to get it there. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's really neat. You know, I can do digital pressure limiting with it where it can, uh, basically throttle back the motor when I hit a certain um, pressure and I can set that pressure digitally. So rather than when you normally hit full lock with your steering setup and you hear the pump groan and it's just creating heat because you're going through a pressure relief valve. Now I can have the motor say, Oh, I'm at maximum pressure. I don't need to keep struggling and pushing. I can just throttle back until that restriction loosens up. Um, So it's, it's really neat in terms of how it can revolutionize the steering system in ways that we just couldn't do before with a traditional uh, pump setup. That is so cool. And now, can we take one step back? I didn't want to interrupt you when you started talking about EV swapping the... your uh, your race car there, if you will. Um, Where in the fuck do you plan on putting a battery? So, in my car, I've got Right now, I uh, 
kind of mentioned, I've got the Hayabusa motor that sits right behind my seat. And then at the back of the car is the gearbox with the CV shafts going out to my rear tires. Mm-hmm. Um, on the Tesla units, I can actually, there's there's companies that make uh, Porsche 940 CV shaft flanges for the output on the Tesla drive units. So basically my plan is to just yank out the gearbox, drop the Tesla motor in there um, and get these uh, new output flanges. And I can just reuse the axle shafts that I've got already. And then that leaves up around where my, right behind my seat, um, I should have a a pretty good envelope that I could stuff batteries in there. If I didn't want to keep it a two seater, then I'd probably just fill the floor where the passenger seat is um, to keep the weight a little bit more forward, but I, I really want to have this as something that I can take people for rides and, and really use as a demo vehicle. So, um, ultimately, I mean, I, I'm just getting ready to yank all the existing drivetrain out of it and strip the whole thing down to the bare chassis to, to start the conversion. So, um, I'm going to have to see what's available, but I also don't necessarily need a ton of battery for this car because it is fairly lightweight. And I'm really going to be sizing the batteries based on, well, basically Mount Washington. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'll be able to calculate how many kilowatt hours I need to essentially do two runs up Mount Washington, maybe you know plus twenty percent. And then the other nice thing about designing this car, you know, which I use more for hill climb than anything else, is that um, every time I race up the hill, I got to come down the hill. So I can uh, can do a little bit of regen to get some some recharge in uh, in that sense as well. All right, I got two more questions about this, and then sorry, I just I'm going. Okay, what is your what is your what is your plan on cooling for that regen? Have you considered that? Because I can only imagine that that long of a distance having to go downhill is going to create a significant amount of heat on that motor during regen. Yeah, so obviously I'm going to still have to put um, some radiators on the car and, and make sure that I'm cooling the batteries, cooling the motor. Um, the steering pump itself has uh, a cooling loop built into it, but it's just using the steering fluid. Basically, the steering fluid gets recirculated back through the motor to cool it. But um, yeah, I mean, with, with any EV, you're going to still end up with radiators. I think you know people that haven't really, haven't, been around evs at all just kind of think like oh yeah it's an electric vehicle so you don't have coolant or oil or any of that but the the fact is that you actually do and there's a lot of thermal management that's that's built in there so um yeah i still have a a bit of research to do i'm figuring this project's going to take about a year that this car is going to be down my goal is to have it ready with enough time i can do a couple races and do some debugging and and stuff like that um before mount washington 2025 hell yeah all right next question is mr mr fire extinguisher man what is your plan because i know that it is a significant effort you say that because you forgot his name no it's eric i know that no joking is saying that he (laughs) felt that he was pretty smart in the idea of fire extinguishing and extinguishing fires and I know that. Okay, I trying... just know we were joking, and you put a little tag <laughs> on his name because you were sure you said you were going to forget. And I was like, did he just forget even after the tag? No, 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 no. <laughs> so, in the circumstances of a fire happening in this vehicle, I hope it never does. I pray that it never okay. actually does, but it's something that you do need to consider. Yep. A, you were talking about putting this right behind your driver's seat. Have you considered doing some form of a firewall that is efficient? Absolutely. Yeah, and actually, so I had, uh, when I 
when I first got this buggy, it was kind of, there was no interior paneling. I ended up building a firewall that was right behind my seat that just separated my seat from the engine, but it only came up to shoulder height. And when I started, I, you know, that was in place when I did the Mint 400 and had the fire there. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't a bad fire, but when I started hill climb racing, um, they were much more strict about their technical regulations. And they, they told me, I, I think the first race, they let it go, but they said, you have to fill in from your shoulder height all the way up to the, the ceiling, up to the roof of the car. You've got to have a solid firewall there. Because I had the engine right there, the radiators right behind the engine, the fuel tank, I've got a 16-gallon fuel cell sits right behind that, um, which, you know, I kind of... I've, I grudged about a little bit, but I knew it was the right thing to do. The The big thing was it added so much drag to the car that I lost you know, several miles an hour at my top speed just because now I've got a solid wall that I'm trying to push against versus uh, air just used to pass right through. The other thing is I started losing uh, cooling as well. Like when I put that, when I first filled in the firewall up to the ceiling, um, my rear radiator lost all of its airflow and I was starting to overheat by the time I'd reached the end of the hill climb run. So before Mount Washington, um, a, a good friend of mine, Mark ended up coming over and helped me. I had actually thrown out my back about a month before Mount Washington uh, and, and could hardly walk. But um, Mark came up and ended up helping me build an air scoop, a uh, roof scoop to pull air from just over the roof and shoot it straight down um, right in front of the radiator. And honestly, it worked phenomenal. I had, I ran uh, Mount Washington. So the, the race that I did before Mount Washington was like three and a half miles or three miles. And my motor was, was well into the red on my temperature gauge um, when I got to the top. And I'm like, geez, this is only half the distance of what Mount Washington will be. And with that roof scoop, it just stayed perfectly cool no matter what. I've not had heating issues since. Um, so yeah, when I go to, to electric and stuff a whole bunch of batteries in there, that's certainly a concern. Um, you know, the, the EV adoption in motorsports is still in its infancy. Um, mm -hmm. There's still a lot that has to be really developed and hashed out um, you know, there's cars out there that are working, but it's not, it's obviously not, uh, you know, well-developed market at this point or well-developed technology. So yeah, there are, it's, it's going to, to be moving pieces, um, from a, a technical standpoint, fire safety is obviously a big one. Um, you know, I will be putting a, a suppression system in, but really it's, I'm not even going to bother pointing anything at the batteries themselves it's about it's about protecting me and, and any other occupants that might be in the car and for any even for a, a normal gas engine uh you know combustion vehicle that's really the the main purpose of a fire suppression system is not necessarily to save the car it's to buy you time to get out of the car in the event that there is a fire mm -hmm. um you know, if it does extinguish the fire and save the car, then that should be looked at as an extra benefit. But that's not the main goal. Um, with the EV stuff, yeah, it's there's kind of limited research that's been done so far as far as you know, fire uh, fire suppression and effectiveness. The um, one of the foam 
systems that that's out there that I'm going to be planning to run, um, at least on a smaller scale, has been reasonably effective. You know, if there's a, a total thermal runaway, which I, I sure as hell hope that never happens, um, there's really not much you can do for it at that point. But I actually, in some of the involvement that I've had over the past year um, in in the EV world, I have been present for a battery fire before. And just because a battery caught fire doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to lose everything and that it's going to be a thermal runaway. Um, you know, we, we had a fire in, uh, I'm not going to specify which vehicle, um, but it was, you know, it, the next morning, essentially when the fire happened, they hit it with a fire extinguisher, grabbed a garden hose, just started, you know, flooding the thing with water and it steamed for a good hour, but you know, it's not like the vehicle was a total loss. The vehicle was still sitting there in the morning. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a thermal runaway. And, you know, between that and then the other big concern that people have uh, when it comes to EV and motorsports is if you have a crash, you know, people being worried about the chassis being electrified and uh, mm. first responders or, you know, the occupants getting electrocuted. And, of course, you know, that's that's a concern, that's a safety risk, but there are ways to, you know, mitigate that. I mean, any anything we do in motorsports has a risk, um, but with the battery technology and, and everything, all of the management that's built into, um, you know, a, a properly done EV system is going to have battery management built into it. You know, we're not talking just some homebrew you know, slap a bunch of batteries together and call it good and hope it doesn't catch fire. Let them in series, call it good. (laughs) Yeah, that's not the way to do this. Um, There is an, there's what's called a high voltage interlock loop. And essentially this is a loop. There's actually two loops. So it's redundantly watching the chassis for any kind of high voltage leak. And if it sees any high voltage leak on the chassis, then it will, open the contactors and break, you know, break the high voltage contact in the, the junction box or in the battery box um, to disconnect the high voltage. And so, you know, it, it's, there are all of these redundant systems that have to get put in place in order to do that safely. But in the event that let's say there's a, a crash or whatever, um, you know, assuming that the systems work correctly, then that high voltage should be completely shut off at that point. Interesting. Um, yeah. I'm not going to claim that I'm an EV fan. I think it's a cool concept. I'm just, the thermal runaway part of it kind of scares me. Um, not so well, much with... Come on, Graham. That's the whole point of the, the disconnect there. Like, that's, yeah, the mean, disconnect is to not keep to not have the chassis electrified, but yeah, <laughs> well, that's right, help. That's helpful disconnect too. Disconnect the high voltage, but I mean, <laughs> a lot of things have to go wrong to have a thermal runway event. Um, there's a lot of thermal management that's you know built in there as well. The batteries have cooling in them, like we were just talking about. There's you know radiators on the car that are specifically cooling the batteries. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, I I realize that. The public perception, I, I can't tell you how many times I see um, see videos get circulated around of just, you know, 
battery after battery and, and EV cars going up in flames and you know the, the propaganda that we shouldn't pursue EVs because of this. But you know, if any any car is going to have a fire risk, and one hundred percent. You take you take the precautions that you can to minimize that risk. And the other thing too is that I think that with the uh, the potential benefits and just the performance and the tunability is really what's attracting me to EV. And mm-hmm. don't get me wrong, like I'm not. I, I'm not promoting. I, I think it's ludicrous to think that you know every road-going car needs to be an EV by some certain date. In, in my opinion, diversity is is the only way. You know, whether for transportation, energy, for everything that we need in our daily lives, it needs to be diverse. It's not like EVs are the solution, or gas is the solution, or or whatever, or hydrogen is the solution. Um, Ooh, explosive, nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> And well, I, I should. Oh, I, I think it's a cool tech. Um, I do think hydrogen is the future because it's renewable in its own way, and the only byproduct is pure water and oxygen. But that's right, just you go me. building your I'm hydrogen just, car. Then, I, dude, I've already like tried it, quantum. but like, all I'm gonna say is there's only a reason it hasn't been done yet is because the CIA out here taking people out because they know uh-huh. that there's no money in it. It's all hey, <laughs> is all I'm gonna say. You know, I'm not no conspiracy guy, but. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> so, my particular fear with um, with the EV stuff comes from the fact that I make lithium batteries, and um, they have a particular nickel coating in them, and I'm not going to go too far into specifics, but when pellets are inserted and whatnot, um, if there is a tear in the coating on the drawing of the material that forms the cells in the batteries it is very easy to get into a runaway. And when you're talking about the micron thickness of it, um, once again, I, I'm under an NDA, so I can't go into too much specifics mm-hmm. on that. But it is, like, very fucking thin. So I'm incredibly scared by them in the KOH sense. Mm-hmm. But I think that they are incredibly awesome in the road scene Everything below, like the rock bouncing and the KOH scene, it's very intriguing to me. Yeah. Um, All right, and I can. I'm going to touch a little bit on on my experience with lithium batteries, which is, uh, I'm a I'm a computer guy. I've seen more blown out computer batteries than uh, probably not anyone, but I've seen quite a few of them. And uh, let me tell you, yeah, that that seal is, you know. There, there's a, a, a potential danger with it tearing, but I've seen, I've never seen one combust. Yeah, it happens, sure, but you can light your 30-gallon tank of gas on fire by, uh, you know, lighting a cigarette too close to it, right? There, no, it's just, it's a, it's what sort of risk are you willing to take? Is is where it comes from, and the we're we're just adjusted to the the risks of gasoline and and flammable liquids. I think that the risks of lithium are probably in the same same vein. I think it's but... uh, with with proper shielding on a lithium cell, which they all have because it's been a technology <laughs> we've had for years. <laughs> About that. Okay, okay, battery boy. But uh <laughs> How you like that job? I hear you don't like it that much. <laughs> Uh, the battery you know, is the least uh, of the worries with that job. I know, I know. I'm just giving you shit. <laughs> it, it's it, you know, it it's it all comes down to, uh, you know, 
what risks are you willing to take here? And the yeah. gasoline is is the you know the one we've it's the one we're we accustomed with. It's the one we know. It's the devil you know, right? Right. And there's there's going to be risks with all of it. Yeah, and and I can't say that I've never been concerned about you know my fuel hose popping off on the back of my motor and and uh, causing you know causing a fire that way that could be could be really bad. I mean, we've seen how many, uh, you know, how many cars in off-road racing have had a, a fuel line or a fuel rail uh, come apart and cause some serious damage, some yeah. you know, serious injuries. Um, and that's, you know, that's really kind of the, the, the big reason just with hydraulics that, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not willing to just kind of willy nilly slap something together. Like it's, it's gotta be done right. It's gotta be a thoughtful execution. Um, it's got to have protection, like we were talking about the firewall. I'm still going to have whether or not it's you know whatever that firewall looks like. I haven't quite figured out until I figure out where the batteries are going, what what the placement looks like. But yeah, it's going to have some serious protection between me and those batteries, so that in the event that something does happen, um, at the very least, I can get out of the car. Yeah, and I'm not faulting and saying that you're not going to do the research. I just have a tough time with it for the simple fact of like, don't get me wrong. I think it's sick. I think it like we rock X rocks type stuff. I think that's absolutely amazing. I've been joking with the guys that maybe the next buggy would be EV, but I just have a tough time with how much money and time and effort do you think Tesla has done to try to keep their vehicles from catching on fire? Probably. And then I can actually talk about that. It's oh, you're not on an NDA with that. I'm not on an NDA with that, <laughs> uh, but I am. I know people that worked for the gigafactories making the batteries for them. So, uh, well, re- regardless of the number, it, that's just that's like you know that was just like a side saying on it. Yeah. But so it's it's tough for me because especially like how you said you know it takes the right certain amount of things to go wrong to have a total meltdown. Yet, I mean. I've seen I've seen more videos of Teslas. Granted, I've seen a lot of diesel trucks lately. I don't know why that's been like the social media crave is like diesel trucks on the side of highways catching on fire. Um, but if you want it, you'll find a lot of it, right? Anything, oh, yeah. anything. yes. Social media, like you want to look at at uh, rigs uh-huh. burning to the ground. You could probably find a lot of them. You want to look at Teslas burning to the ground. You can find a lot of those too. I'm sure. Oh, but yeah. it's just it's tough for me to be like, yeah, this is you know like. It's it's someday it probably be, will be the way of the future and if radial dynamics is the forefront on it I'll follow along like you know the good elephant behind the daddy elephant if that's how it has to be <laughs> well um, at, at least for off road steering that's that's kind of, <laughs> I'm, I'm not planning on making batteries or drive units or anything like that but um, no the the steering pumps themselves they're it's it's really cool and then some of the other. Um, other develop longer term projects that I've been working on um, would be things like active steering and, and steer by wire, which I actually have some some prototypes of those that are out there existing in the wild as well. Um, and so just trying to bring together, you know, the EV is one one project. Active steering and, and basically smart steering is another project and just trying to think longer term, what can I do to to really, to really push the limits of, of what's imaginable. So steer by um, wire, I can drive my rig with an Xbox controller. Is this the, this the sort sure. of uh, okay? Absolutely. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I've got for those of you that follow uh, Vague Industries. About a year ago, there was a, a project called Stomper, 
and Stomper was a yep. four-wheel steer, a little tie truck uh, with a twin-turbo LS, just totally nutty. Yep. But it had an active rear steer setup in it, so we put uh, angle sensors, steering angle sensors on the front and rear axle. And then on the uh, for the rear axle steering, it was actually commanded by a control module. And I've developed a, uh, a valve setup that basically I can digitally control the steering position. Um, so using using this setup, you, you turn your steering wheel to turn the front and you can make it automatically steer the rear and you can get into um, you, whether you're controlling the rear to, to either crab or counter steer and you can have it change its proportion. So if you steer the front 10 degrees, you can have the rear be a one-to-one where it would steer 10 degrees rear or you could have it be a proportion where maybe you turn the front 10 degrees and um, turn the rear five degrees, something along those lines. That's cool. Um, and then taking that a step further, you can get into, you know, speed, uh, speed sensitive steering. So kind of like what GM did with the Quadratech or Quadrasteer mm-hmm. uh, back in, in the two thousands, um, you can have it so that at slow speeds below a certain threshold, let's say, you know, 15 or 20 miles per hour, Assuming that you're in a parking lot and you're trying to turn, uh, make a tight turn, you can have a counter steer by some certain amount and reduce your turning radius, effectively shorten your wheelbase. But when you're at high speed, you can either have the rear just stay straight or um, you could have it slightly grab steer and you effectively lengthen your wheelbase and you make the car more stable at higher speed going around turns. And, you know, we can, we can start getting into that level of vehicle, you know, dynamic tunability. Um, and then uh, kind of taking that whole concept another step further, doing full steer by wire, you know, we can get into, if, if we take that concept and we develop it out further, doing things like digitally variable steering ratios. So some steering boxes out there will be less sensitive in the center and, and more sensitive towards as you increase your steering angle away from center. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could change that digitally. Um, or you could have it, again, change based on speed sensitive, you know, speed feedback going to the control module. So it, these are things that are kind of a little bit longer term projects, but I do have, you know, some prototypes that are out there being tested. So Stomper was one that's uh, now living out in California. Um, but, you know, uh, Paul Horschel's Ultra 4 car is a four wheel steer running the, the valve setup that I put together. And, um, you know, that is Paul. I love working with Paul Horschel because that's like the pinnacle of Ultra 4 technology. You know, kind of pushing pushing the limits, um, and so yeah, just really kind of seeing where where all of that can go. And I mean, there's certainly something to be said for you know you know like the the Miller Motorsports cars and Big B. Their their chassis, everything about their car is just simple, and it works, and it's always going to be competitive. Um, but then you got the cars that are the spaceships that have all of the new technology packed into them that, uh, you know, I think a lot of them are still, everything's just so new that they're still really working the bugs out. But when they have a good day, you're not going to be able to touch them. 
Nope. Sadly, Richie's not here to be able to make fun of me for shitting on the uh, IFS when it first started coming out. <laughs> um, I still maintain solid axle supremacy, but yeah, oh, I, I, I love the solid axles, but yeah, the I, I don't think there's any denying that IFS has been. Um, it's here to stay. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's I mean it's it's again it's kind of the the more modern technology it's more expensive it's more prone to failure but when it's when you have a good day with it you're going to be fast the thing about it that i find nuts is the ability to pick up speed in the desert on mm-hmm. those races like yeah a good ifs car should absolutely hands down eat any uh solid front axle car one area that I won't be sold on, though, and I will probably eat my words on this in, like, five years, is the IRS cars. I can't get behind that. They're still finishing podiums. Top of the podium. That is uh, true. Like I said, you will be behind them. You'll <laughs> yeah. be behind them with your solid axle rear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 there's something about solid axles. They're, they're not a... Uh, they're not the best in the desert. They're but they're they have their place. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's uh it was space for all everybody. Everybody can can have a little yeah. a little nook. Right? And that's yeah. that's the coolest thing about Ultra Four is yep. you know, we look at where where the cars have gone in the last ten years. It's and some nuts. of them still look very similar, some of them look totally just different. Who, who would have imagined? Um, but yeah, to, to see the variety and, and what works and who's competitive where, and, um, it's been a really, really fascinating genre of motorsports to watch for the last 15 years. So, Ooh, I have a question. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. My brain was just broken for a second. All of a sudden I remember when you said, so, all right. Is it true that if you go full EV with your with your cart that you do your hill climbs with that you have to do a siren of sorts to acknowledge like so people know that you're coming up the the course yes the and it i don't know if that's the case with all any kind of racing organization um but certainly with the hill climb uh hill climb rules at least in the the organization that i race with and i'm pretty sure pike's peak requires that the car has to have a siren are you planning on doing something funny or is it just going to be a typical siren? <laughs> I would really love to make the Jetsons sound work. Yes, I was oh, thinking that so one. Good. I actually was, when we were talking about that EV conversion, it was in my mind. And I was like, oh, you can put that little sound on it as he goes up. But yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it has to have some type of sound. I don't know if they, I haven't gotten that far yet to see if they have, uh, you know, specification. I think that there's a decimal, a minimum decimal limit that they require. Um, so but, loud Jetsons. Yeah. Loud, if loud was, Jetsons. Yeah. If it was me, it would be ludicrous as move, bitch. Get out the way. But I don't run any kind of company. Or Freebird, so. dude. Imagine Freebird as you're shredding down the trail. Not trail, of course, sorry. Uh, yeah. like you copyright. Limitless oh, I, possibilities. You could. Yeah. Um, I think the uh, like a lot of the off-road racing series they they don't require a siren, um, but you know it, certain organizations. I think it depends on really where you're going and and uh, 
what that particular racing body decides. So I've got two points to make. Um, going back to talking about the high voltage uh, controllers for your um, power steering setup there with the EV vehicles, I think that that's going to be super cool because you could make that steering um, basically depending upon throttle input or lack of throttle input and the speed sensors, mm-hmm. basically do whatever the fuck you wanted to do. And that's going to be a wild thing to experience because of the amount of tunability in the steering is going to be nuts. Yeah. So with just kind of the basic pump setup, um, you still use a normal orbital valve or you can use a steering box or a rack and pinion. That, that part doesn't really matter. Um, Basically, I look at the torque in the steering column is how I'm determining my my demand. Uh, but we also need to take into account vehicle speed. So at, at higher speeds, I need to run the pump a little bit faster just so that we've got a, a quicker quicker response. Um, but if you know if you're in a rock crawler, that's just a wee rock buggy, let's say. Um, you don't necessarily need a super fast response. And we can have it where, you know, if you're not steering, that pump just shuts off and it stops running. And then the moment you touch the steering wheel, it, you know, comes back alive and it's providing you however much flow rate you need. Um, the That's other thing that, yeah, it's it's super cool because steering, steering systems are such energy wasters. Um, that's really all my job is, is trying to manage energy waste at high RPM so I can give you steering performance at low RPM. And uh, with this, you know, it, of course, battery life, how much range is somebody going to be able to get out of batteries? Um, that's kind of the big question. And with off-road especially, and maybe not necessarily being near a place that you can just plug in and recharge, that's kind of, that's going to be a make or break situation, but you still have to get, you know, even if, even if we're not running a normal steering pump that's going to be wasting 10 horsepower at high RPM, just to turn to produce enough torque on the steering knuckles that you can turn big tires at a reasonable rate still requires, just from a, a fundamental level, you need about 5 to 10 horsepower. Um, I, maybe I should say, you know, three to three to eight horsepower, depending on you know what the vehicle is and, and what you're doing, but um, you know, what that's whether it's coming from a gas engine or batteries or, you know, muscle power, if you've got manual steering, that's how much horsepower you need to turn. So, um, yeah, especially with a slow speed vehicle, just making it essentially on demand like that will be a huge reduction in energy waste and, uh, allow you to, to get the needed power for steering while maximizing your your battery range um and then the other nice benefit of that too is because the pump the pump itself has all the controls are low voltage just the 12 volt uh control module and sensors and all that um but the the pump motor is operating off of the high voltage the, the bus voltage that's directly being provided to the junction box from the battery modules um, and because it's going to be way more efficient to take energy and, and you know, transmit transmit energy from the high voltage directly rather than going through an inverter and converting it to 12 volts and then running something like a winch off of that, um, what we can do with 
the high voltage pump is you can then run a hydraulic winch on the front of the car. Because now instead of drawing a couple hundred amps through a 12 volt inverter, you can just draw a couple of amps at high voltage through the hydraulic pump and use that to to get the energy that you need for winching. So that'll be cool. Yeah. So it, it's, it's neat in that um, it opens up, you know, some, some more, uh, more reasons to, to use hydraulic equipment that increases the efficiency of the car. So you saying that spurts the uh, autism brain here and um, <laughs> he actually has autism just to clarify. He's not making fun of the autistic. Okay. <laughs> just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> yep. I even stole the road sign to go in the roof. Um, so with hydro boost, does that play into a, or effect when you're choosing a pump size or a flow size for the pump? Um, are you talking about just a traditional steering system? I'm talking about like, if you were to run under a, say, yeah, a traditional steering system. Yeah. But like... So with the hydro boost, it really, that will affect, um, the maximum flow rate that we would want to be pushing through it. Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, and, and there are some ported units out there. I've had customers that have run ported units from some of the other manufacturers or other customers that just run like an auto zone hydro boost unit. Um, but essentially we don't want to put too much, uh, too much flow rate going through that hydro boost. We want to keep it limited to a reasonable range. So that's especially where, um, using like a flow, a flow regulated pump is going to be more beneficial than, you know, just like a full out race pump. Okay. Hmm. Um, sorry, there's just so many questions that I have because it like <laughs> kind of all of this stuff gets intertwined. Right. Um, and so the other question I have is going back to the ultra four stuff. Have you ever done anything with the, um, what do they call it? The rack and pinion, but it's running the orbital off of the rack and pinion. I don't yeah, know. What the 40, call that. For 4,500 class setups. Yeah. Those are nutty to me. Can you explain how that all works out? <laughs> and then yeah, also so- tell us how the earth was made. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Basically, on the eighth day. what you're trying to do is create as close to a full hydro system as you can while still maintaining the the steering box to be your mechanical position, what, what maintains the mechanical position. Um, and it, it requires putting a servo valve. So an orbital valve is actually a servo valve coupled with a small hand pump. And we can take that servo valve, not necessarily one out of an orbital, but you can get a servo valve that does the same function, put that in line in the steering column. And now that's really, it's got a a torsion bar inside of it. So it's, it's deflecting the valve to feed oil to the left or the right port, but your steering box is what's controlling the position of the tires versus a, um, with an orbital valve, you've got that same concept servo. But it's going to essentially a, a hydraulic hand pump, which is really controlling the volume of oil that you're moving to the hydraulic ram. And that's what's controlling the position in that case. Um, and it's, it's one of, with the 4500 glass setup with the steering box and the servo valve, 
there's a lot more tuning that has to go into the system to get it to work right. And without the right tuning or the right, you know, if, if the valve or the flow rate or the RAM size is all mismatched, then what I see commonly um, is that when people go to turn, the steering will start to shudder a bit. It'll it'll shake because the the RAM and the box and the and the orbital or sorry and the servo valve they're not all keeping up with each other. So one will start to push too much oil into the RAM that starts to move ahead of the box, and then it kind of gets into this oscillation. Um, I really haven't spent a whole lot of time working on these systems, uh, just because, like I said, the, the full hydro stuff has really kept me quite busy. Um, but I have had a couple customers that I've been working with and, and trying to to work on some different solutions or just improved solutions right now. Um, so I've got one that's going to be trying out a, a different valve that I've sourced for them and, and sized out um, that perhaps that might end up being, you know, something to offer in the near future, or at the very least, I'm going to have a, a data point here pretty soon once he gets to do some testing. All right. I was just curious because like I have a 10 mile overview on that, but I figured that asking you is bringing that down to a one mile overview at the best, <laughs> maybe a half mile. So that's super cool as far as the way that whole system works and it puts it really well into perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, well, alrighty, we are officially at three hours. Yeah. So, I just want to, you know, if anybody has any final questions with one another, we should probably get that on and going with. And before we get into that, Mr. Eric, where can everybody find you on all the socials? All right. So, social media, I am uh, at Radial Dynamics on Instagram, well, Instagram or Facebook. Radial Dynamics, R-A-D-I-A-L Dynamics, all one word. Um, you can also find me on uh, YouTube at Radial Dynamics. And then my website is radial-dynamics.com. Um, that's a radial hyphen, but everybody knows it as a dash. Surprisingly, hyphen confuses some people. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, if, uh, if anybody ever needs any steering assistance full hydro is my specialty and i'm always always happy to help and and deliver improvements wherever i can and if they were interested in reaching out because there's a few guys in here that are pretty uh witty with all that stuff and probably have a few questions what would be the best way to contact you uh best way would either be through messenger on uh, facebook or instagram um there's also uh phone number is 413-776-5281 and i'm usually try to be pretty good about answering my phone and if not (laughs) i'm good about getting back to voicemails um and then also uh by email at info at radial-dynamics.com well, hell yeah, man. This has been an absolutely fun episode. It's been awesome. I kind of felt like I was sitting in a classroom just listening, which is cool sometimes to just sit back and take it all in. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap this up, does anybody got any final questions? Take that as a no. Well, all righty. Well, thank you guys. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate every single one of you guys. Thank you for coming in every single week. Uh, Next week, we're going to have an absolutely fantastic episode. And again, thank you, Eric, for coming on and absolutely killing it. You were phenomenal. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And on that note...
On that note, Cody didn't ask his tire question, which is a first Fuck. in blue-collar <laughs> off-road history. And Luke put together a beautiful shopping list. Um, if you have any... Uh, if you have any steering needs of the full hydro variety, at this point in time, if you have any questions, you're silly for not going to Radial Dynamics. You probably oh, need yeah. to find that hyphen key first, though. Start looking on your keyboard. 